Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Well, it's another beautiful sunny day in the state of Oregon. I appreciate you listening to this radio show statewide, wherever you are. we got a great show today. Tyson Alger of the I-5 Corridor is going to be along to talk about the Oregon Ducks. Dan Lanning. What, what is success for an Oregon football season. What is success for an Oregon State football season? We'll talk about the college football season uh, that is in front of us uh, later in the show at 4 o'clock. I want you here. What have we been seeing on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, on ESPN and Fox? What have we been seeing? Umpiring under the microscope. Major League Baseball umpires uh, struggling to call balls and strikes. Hitters outraged. We've seen pitchers, we've seen brawls. Jim Joyce will be with us, former Major League Baseball umpire, longtime umpire and crew chief. We'll be along to talk about what we're seeing when it comes to umpiring in the game of baseball. Is it any different than the game we saw 10 or 20 years ago? Is it just different because we're seeing more of it? We've got that rectangular strike zone box on our television set. Or is there something else going on? Jim Joyce will be along, former Major League Baseball crew chief, umpire. He'll be with us. Uh, Also in the 4 o'clock hour, we'll go to Eugene, where track and field has been a big-time focus. World championships coming up later in July. U.S. championships uh, just taking place. High school state championships, Pac-12 championships, NCAA championships. How much track and field is too much track and field? I'm just asking for friends because we are getting a lot of track and field in our state. Great show today. We'll get a lot of your phone calls. Uh, we will uh, get, uh, get uh, a lot of your opinions as well. We're going to talk about a lot of joyful things. I have talked about taking this show on the road, and this show is on the road. I am broadcasting today from Corvallis, Oregon. Corvallis, uh, home of the Oregon State Beavers, uh, also some Duck fans. I ran into, I was at Home Depot in Corvallis this morning, and uh, just don't ask me why I was in Home Depot. Wandering around Home Depot, and some guy said, hey, wait a minute, are you John Canzano, or you just look like him? And I said, I'm him, and he goes, huge fan of the show. And he also says, I'm a Duck fan. And he, you know, he, he said it kind of under his breath. But uh, I imagine if you are a Duck fan growing up in Corvallis, uh, that could be a uncomfortable proposition or maybe it's not in some years but uh this show is on the road it's in corvallis it's not corvallis week it's corvallis day uh, it's liable to pop up anywhere in the state you should tweet at me at john Canzano bft tell me what where you want this radio show to appear next you want us to go to sayo you want us to go to woodburn you want us to go to albany eugene klamath falls how about uh roseburg uh, just give me a shout-out on Twitter, at John Canzano BFT on Twitter. I want to start today, though, by talking about, like, yesterday I asked you, like, where's that place that you would want to go 
as a sports fan, that joyful place that you would want to see or you would want to go. And we had some people call in, and they were talking about major sporting events or whatnot. This, this was like, where haven't you been but you would like to go? Today I want to start a little differently. And again, I'm looking up at blue skies, sunshine. I know this show is an escape for you. There's too much crap going on in the world, so we're going to keep it light here off the top of the show. I want you to tell me somewhere you've been that you tell other people they have to go when it comes to sports. Where have you been and what have you seen that other people should see? This is basically like your sports Yelp review for our listeners. Tell people if you've been to uh, Churchill Downs and seen a Kentucky Derby and, hey, you need to go there. If you've been to Fenway or Wrigley, where's that place you tell other people about? Have you been to uh, the Rose Bowl? Have you been to the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum? Have you played golf at Bandon Dunes? Like, you just tell me, where's that place where – you would give a five-star must-see. This is on. This should be on your bucket list. We're trying to fill other people's buckets on the bucket list today. But tell me where it is that you would go. I have a whole slew of places, and not all of them are famous and well-known. But I, I think if you're a sports fan, you can help other sports fans out by saying, hey, this is a place you ought to go. 503-417-7575 is the phone number. Uh, we uh, have big guests ahead, but I want you to lead us off on the phone lines. Uh, Judah Newby back in studio in downtown Portland. I'm in Corvallis, Oregon. The show is on the road, so to speak. We are barnstorming like Bingo Long and the Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings back in the day. If you haven't seen that movie, you should check it out. Judah, where's that place? Give me your five-star Yelp review for sports fans. Baseball guy here speaking. Wrigley is one of the happiest places on earth for me. I mean, it's got the history. It's got the atmosphere. It's on the north side of one of the best cities in the world. And uh, I just love it. Now, I'm a St. Louis Cardinal fan, so it's particularly special when it's Cards Cubbies. Uh, and our friend uh, Darwin Barney, when he used to play on the north side, I was in college at the time, so I saw Darwin play against my Redbirds a, a time or two. That's that's a great experience. I'll also throw in, though, and it's a, another baseball flavor. You know, I'm a Cardinal fan, but I, I like rooting for the Giants on the side. And I've been mm. uh, fortunate to see Giants-Dodgers both at AT&T Stadium and at uh, Chavez Ravine at Dodger Stadium. Which is better? I like AT&T. I do, too. The, the parking at Chavez is tough, you know, and L.A. traffic is just tough in general. Plus the Dodgers. <laughs> and the Dodgers, right, exactly. You know, basically it's Dodgers, yeah. it's Dodger dogs, it's yeah. Dodger fans, it's Dodger players. Too much Dodger. Uh, yeah, I, I got uh, standing room only at AT&T Stadium on a Wednesday afternoon in 09, August of 09. Manny Ramirez was a Dodger at the time. And uh, Tim Lincecum was on the hill for San Fran, and it was just awesome. It was, it was a great game, extra innings. It, it was a great atmosphere. But if you can see a rivalry in any sport yeah. at each home venue, I think that is a pretty cool bucket list item right there. I I went years ago to PNC Park in Pittsburgh, and it it was just you know it was fairly new stadium at the time, and uh, I'm going to say it was about a decade ago. I was at PNC Park, Anna was there with me. It was a day game midweek. We uh, we happened to uh, just jump on like StubHub or whatever the equivalent was at the time, and we bought some tickets and we paid like sixteen dollars to sit behind the dugout in the third row. That's how cheap the tickets were. The Pirates were bad. They were playing the Royals that day, and it was uh, a beautiful sunny day in Pittsburgh. And it was the kind of day that made me think about Portland as a baseball town because if you've ever been to Pittsburgh, 
uh, Three Rivers Stadium or Heinz Field or you, you've seen the stadiums on the rivers. I mean, it just reminds you of Portland with the bridges and the river running through sort of the downtown corridor. And it was really cool to see the walk-up crowd at PNC. They have a footbridge that kind of goes over the river, and a lot of the people uh, who went to the game walked over the footbridge and then along the bank of the river on sort of the river walk and went into PNC Park. And it didn't matter to me that the teams were bad. It didn't matter to me that the game was seemingly meaningless. It was a great day. It was a sunny day, and I would say five-star Yelp review on that one. Like, go see a Major League Baseball game on a sunny day uh, where even if you don't have a dog in the fight, you can uh, you can find some joy at the ballpark, especially on these lazy midweek summer days. I remember the Giants at Candlestick Park, The speaking of Wednesdays, they used to have a Wednesday business special. It was always a day game. It was a 12.05 first pitch or a 105 first pitch, and the Giants would play a day game. And the crowds were, you know, modest. They were 15,000, 17,000. But, man, it was a great opportunity to not have to see a night game at Candlestick Park. So I can remember a couple of times going to those day games. I want your five-star sports Yelp review at 503-417-7575. Join in. Even if you think other people share that same experience, I can guarantee you that you're going to spark something in someone, and you're going to make somebody go, you know, I ought to do that. I ought to go and, what, fill in the blank, watch watch the Tour de France, uh, go watch a minor league baseball game in Eugene or, or, or in Salem. Uh, I drove by the ballpark in Salem uh, last week, and they were playing like a midweek game. And I thought to myself, good for the uh, what used to be the Salem-Kaiser Volcanoes. They essentially just kept playing baseball despite minor league baseball locking them out of the minor league system. Like, there are some people there, and by the way, you can rent that stadium as an Airbnb and take bratting practice with your friends, but uh, I think that there are a variety of different five-star experiences when it comes to sports, and I want to hear yours. 503-417-7575. I got three lines open. Grab one of those lines right now. Sean, give me your five-star Yelp review experience. Yeah, I was fortunate to be at the inaugural Pac-12 championship football game this year in Las Vegas at the brand-new nice. Allegiant Stadium. That place is nice. That place is really, really cool. I mean, there's it's one of a few modern NFL stadiums, the indoor setting. And I think it's, you know, it's not only a beautiful stadium, but I think it's a really good location for the uh, the Pac-12 championship game going forward. So it was unfortunate, though, that Oregon got absolutely manhandled in that game. Yeah, that stadium was really loud, too. And and for people who've been to Vegas, stadium's phenomenal. But, Sean, did you have a hard time getting to the stadium and getting back from the stadium? From a where little you were bit, staying? yeah. We Ubered. We actually Ubered there. Yeah, because I, I talked to a lot of people. Like, after the game, there's kind of this Uber parking lot outside of that Vegas uh, Allegiant Stadium. And, uh, you know, it, it becomes a little congested after the games. And I've talked to people, like, after the NFL Raider games in particular, I guess it's kind of a nightmare to get out of there. And it's not it's on the opposite side of the freeway from the Strip. And so in order to get there, you got to Uber or you got to walk uh, quite a distance. Even my Uber driver didn't want to go down there. He dropped me off like a half a mile from the stadium. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to hoof it from here. And I was walking up to Allegiant Stadium for that game. And, and uh, I looked over, and Phil Knight was walking as well. Like his, his driver had led him off uh, several blocks from the stadium as well. <laughs> I want your five-star 
bucket list review in the world of sports. What is it that you've seen? Where have you gone that you would recommend to other people? What is it we do when we need an electrician or a plumber or a painter? It's all word of mouth, right? We always talk to each other and we go, hey, this is who you should use. You need a heating and cooling system? By the way, last week when it got hot, everybody was blowing me up. What's your heating and cooling place? First call heating and cooling. We do that, right? Five-star review. These are the guys. Great service. You know, they're the experts. Well, tell me that with your sports thing. We're going to do it in the next segment. I want you to line up wherever you are today. I know you may not be thinking that you have something to offer in this conversation, but I want to hear from you. I want yours because you're going to spark memories from other people. You're going to spur other people to call in. And frankly, uh, you're going to give me ideas as I begin to assemble a list of what, what I want to do, places I want to go. Where have you been? What have you seen? What would you recommend to other people? 503-417-7575. you got the bald-faced truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network, broadcasting today from Corvallis, Oregon, home of the Oregon State Beavers and your Benton County Community College uh, baseball team as well. Shout-out to them. I want you to tell me where your bucket list five-star sport experience is from. You tell me. you got the bald-faced truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I want your five-star sports Yelp review. Where have you been that you would recommend to other people? Where have you gone? What have you seen that you would recommend to other people? 503-417-7575. I went to Louisville, Kentucky one time to cover a Kentucky Derby, and I found something altogether else that was pretty damn cool. The Louisville Slugger Museum, where they manufacture the Louisville Slugger baseball bats, is a must-see. That is a five-star Yelp review experience. Now, would I go to Louisville, Kentucky just for the Louisville Slugger Museum? Probably not. But if you're there or passing through or you're there seeing some other event or you just happen to find yourself in Louisville one day and you got a couple of hours to burn, get yourself over to the Louisville Slugger Museum. You walk in and they literally have all of the bat panels, all of the signature panels for every player, minor league, major league, every professional player that they have ever manufactured a bat for. They have the signature panel. And it's uh, a line of Hall of Famers, Henry Aaron to Willie Mays to others. It's a bunch of minor leaguers mixed in with them. I found my dad's signature panel. They have them on the walls. You can literally run your fingers over the signature panels of all these players. And I found my dad's and thought that was pretty cool. You can get in a cage. You can hit with a bat. They show you how they manufacture the bats. It's a great interactive experience. That's what I'm talking about. Five-star experience, Yelp review. I recommend it highly. What do you recommend? What have you seen in sports? Minor league, major league, professional, college? You tell me. 503-417-7575. Let's go out to Eugene. Bob is in Eugene listening on Fox Sports Eugene. Go ahead, Bob. What do you got? Hi, John. Uh, I think any college football fan who's ever been to the Rose Bowl will you know, talk about that iconic venue, uh, especially the one that I experienced, and you were there because I remember saying hi to you, was Marcus Mariota and James Winston. 
kind of Darth Vader versus Luke Skywalker. <laughs> it was just, it was a wonderful day, and uh, it's just, it's, it's a wonderful memory I had with my daughter. Yeah, see, there you go. It, you made a memory there that day, and that was a great, uh, great experience. And you're right, Marcus Mariota made it all that sweeter. I think the Rose Bowl, I just think for any Pac-12 fan or former Pac-10 fan or anybody who's on the West Coast, the Rose Bowl holds a certain mystique. If you haven't been to a game there, go check out a game there. It doesn't even need to be a big game. It's just something about sort of when you walk up and you see sort of the marquee in front of the stadium that, that says the Rose Bowl. Uh, that opens the line, 503-417-7575. Let's go to Tony, who's in Washougal. Tony, what do you got? What's your Yelp review? Hey, John, this is a great topic. I'm from England originally, and I, I would tell any American who's going to go to Europe, get tickets for a sporting game. Go to a soccer match in England or a cricket match or and just see how, they, see how the Brits enjoy themselves. I love that. So how is that different? Give us an idea of how you think that's different than maybe in the U.S., um, the crowds are more vocal, you know, they're not orchestrated like some of the soccer fans here, like the Timbers have their, you know, if something goes wrong with a referee, they'll invent a song on the day, you can get a beer at the ground, you can sit there, uh, the fans are all kind of intermingled with each other, it's just a great experience, you just see uh, the Brits enjoying themselves, or the, if you go to France or Italy, it's a religion, you know, you go to Spain and watch Real Madrid or Barcelona. It's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I love that. And, and you know what? There's so much when you go to – and the NBA is probably more guilty of this than others. But sometimes you go to a sporting event, and it's manufactured, right? It's game operations people. And it's not their fault, but it's pumped-in music. It's T-shirt cannons. It's you know the dance team. It's uh, you know somebody riding a unicycle, uh, flipping bowls on their, onto their head. It's – it feels very orchestrated, and other times it, it it is very much about the fan base, and it's very much about the experience, and the fans sort of become the atmosphere. That's how that's how sports used to be, right? That it wasn't manufactured, it wasn't piped in music, it wasn't. Frankly, I I one of the things I liked about the pandemic, and there wasn't much, but one of the things I liked about it is it gave us a chance to see the stadiums and hear the stadiums when they were empty. And I think one of the interesting things that happened is television started piping in fake crowd noise. And it, it was evident that you, the fans, were missing. Like, without you, the atmosphere wasn't there. And for all those stadiums that will pump in music and overproduce the, you know, timeout experience... Um, it, I think it was evidence that you know what you really all you really need is fans who are passionate inside of the building, and once that happens, you literally get atmosphere, and I think it's phenomenal. Um, you know, we've got Stephen who is new to the show. He has not appeared on air yet. I've talked to him a little bit off air. Does Stephen have a Yelp review experience? Uh, something you've seen? Uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head here, John. Uh, I... Not right now. Let, let, come back to me in a couple <laughs> then minutes. That's I'll okay. Real quick. And that's okay because look, I can. I and, and my thing is, I'm hesitant to be like, you need to go to Augusta National because not everybody can jump on a plane and get to Augusta, especially for a Masters or whatnot. Like that's not something I would have done had I not have a media credential. So I'm trying to eliminate those experiences that I have had. I just, you know, I've seen Wrigley Field. It's phenomenal. The Ivy. It's more beautiful than it looks on television. I've seen Fenway. 
there's something about Fenway being part of the neighborhood that it's in. When you walk up on the stadium, nowadays, the stadiums that they build, they build, uh, of course, parking lots and parking structures, and there's an entertainment district around the stadium. But Fenway Park, it literally is a neighborhood where a ballpark was situated. And it has that charm of, you know, you're just walking down the street and, and, you know, there are bars and restaurants, but here comes a ballpark. And it, it almost defies logic, uh, you know, because of some of the other stadiums that you see that are just massive footprints. It defies logic that you could fit it into the neighborhood. I think for Pac-12 fans, I'm going to point out a couple of places that maybe are outliers that you don't really think about as go-to five-star Yelp review experiences. I'm going to give you one. It is in Colorado, Folsom Field at uh, Colorado. If you ever get the chance to see your team play a road game at Colorado, I highly recommend flying into Denver, driving over to Boulder, getting over to Folsom Field, especially if it's a night game at Folsom Field. When you walk up to a Colorado football game at night, everything around the sky and everything around it is just beautiful. It's gorgeous. Uh, you know, obviously clean air and mountains around, uh, you know, that you can see all over the place, everybody healthy and in the sunshine in the spring and into the fall. And then all of a sudden they kick the lights on at Folsom Field, and it has this real old-school feel that there is literally like a field house that is attached to the stadium that you can walk through to get into the stadium. It's almost like a barn that as you walk into the uh, into the field house area. And then you have the stadium, which is uh, on this footprint that has been embedded sort of on the side of a mountainside. And it's just gorgeous, and I think it's underrated for sports experiences. So, yeah, if you get an opportunity to go see a college football game, you get to see your Ducks or your Beavers play at Colorado, hell, that's not a bad road trip. I'm going to give that one four and a half stars. It's not a five-star experience because Colorado hasn't been all that great, but you get some you get some flavor. Like, it's a really nice sports experience, and it has – uh, a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, you know, there's a little bit of flair to it because you got Ralphie the Buffalo running out of the tunnel before the games, and and you, you know, Colorado football hasn't been good, in, you know, in recent years. Like they have struggled at different times mightily in the Pac-12, especially in this era of Pac-12 football. But I think it's been really interesting to kind of see some games there. And I've I've walked up on that stadium a couple of times at night, and I've gone, gosh, man, this is such a sleeper. It's a sleeper opportunity. Here's another one. Uh, that is one that I would give you is go check that out. Go see that and, and see, what, you know, see what that's about for yourself. Another one that I would point out is Arizona. Tucson, Arizona. And Arizona kind of gets this uh, deservedly so uh, reputation of being in the desert. And, but there is something about like about a 5 o'clock or a 7 o'clock kickoff in the desert with the sky orange and purple and red and yellow and it's all mixed together it looks like you know my six-year-old painted the sky uh and you can just look off the back of the stadium there at uh at arizona and you uh you just get an idea that like out in the middle of the desert they're having this football game now i wouldn't want to be there on a 104 degree day but on a nice fall day that is not a bad place to go check out a game i want your five-star bucket list review coming up bottom of the hour we're going to visit with tyson alger of the i-5 corridor we're going to talk about the ducks we're going to talk about the beavers we're talking about the pac-12 but i want your bucket list place where would you recommend that other people go what should they see what should they do 
Uh, we'll take one more phone call here, and then uh, and then we'll jump to break. But I love this because it's giving me ideas. Let's go to Courtney, who's in Eugene, who is going to share a bucket list. Courtney, what do you got? Well, John, it wasn't really a bucket list, but when I witnessed the Ducks versus USC right after 9-11, the first game, that was just, it was just magical. There was nothing like it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think sometimes big football game, right? Every time Oregon plays USC, that is a big game. Yeah, and it was a night game, and you, you had the, you know, the national anthem and stuff. It was there was no experience like that before. Yeah, there was a little bit of magic every time the anthem or "God Bless America" was played in sort of the wake of 9/11, as we were all unified and galvanized. Uh, think about that as the good old days. Tyson Alger, I-5 Corridor, coming up next. Uh, I'm going to ask him this. What's a success for Dan Lanning in Oregon this season? And what is a successful year for Jonathan Smith in Oregon State? Tyson Alger, coming up next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, I went rogue in March. People know that you can read me now at johnconzano.com. Tyson Alger, formerly of the Oregonian, formerly of the Athletic, he went rogue before me. And uh, it was Tyson that I talked to throughout the process as I was sort of trying to figure out, you know, what platform do I want to use, you know, what – uh, what strategy do I want to use? And Tyson had launched I-5 Corridor several months, about a year in front of what I did. He has uh, had a successful run there. He continues to write there. You should check out i5corridor.com if you want to read Tyson Alger. And he's joining us now live via satellite. Where are you today, Tyson Alger? I am sitting on my front porch here in beautiful, sunny Portland, Oregon, John. It is, uh, I, I know that we've had a, a lot of rain here so far this summer and, and spring, but i uh, got to definitely take advantage of uh, these two days that we've had so far. Amen. And you know what? I was one of these people when I got here, and people said, oh, the summers are beautiful. I said, that's because the winters suck. And, they, and then now I'm one of these people going, the summers are beautiful, but I'll take it. Uh, you wrote today at I-5 Corridor about – a couple of five-star players that Oregon hosted over the weekend. Dante Moore, Richard Young, quarterback, running back, both five-star guys. Uh, what do you know about them visiting Dan Lanning and the Ducks? Yeah, you know, this Dan Lanning staff is any worries that we had about Oregon taking a step back and recruiting from the four-year four year highs of Mario Cristobal. Um, at the This. Uh, yeah, they might not have the commitment numbers quite yet, but they definitely have shown that they can uh, still keep Oregon on their radar. And, and so when you look at this player, Dante Moore, he's, um, it's it's kind of musical chairs at this point with, with those level of quarterbacks right now in the country. You know, you just saw Miami, Lou, or Jaden Rashada uh, down there, who was another player Oregon was in contention with. And, and so, you know, the, the Ducks would really like to shore up kind of the, the next four years of this program with, with that top level of, of talent. And then it really does look like that, that visit 
went well for them this week, especially when you pair it with kind of the other levels of, of players that were in town. And, um, you know, with, with Richard Young, uh, an incredible five-star running back there, it just really got me thinking about some of those better quarterback running back combos in Oregon history. And uh, they, they, they've certainly had ample demo over the last couple yeah, you talk about quarterback running back matchups. Joey Harrington, Maurice Morris come to mind. You mentioned them. Uh, Dan Fouts and Bobby Moore, Ahmad Rashad. Dennis Dixon and Jonathan Stewart were lethal together, especially Stewart in that backfield, 1,700 rushing yards. Darren Thomas, LaMichael James, how could we forget that one? And then Marcus Mariota and Royce Freeman. But you ranked you ranked these, and you didn't have any of those that I mentioned as your number one Oregon combination. Who was the number one combination on your board? Yeah, I had the the 2012 combination of Marcus Mariota and Kenyon Barner. Um, I mean, just having you know, you don't really need to read out uh, Marcus's credentials, but Kenyon Barner, who for a lot of his Oregon career was kind of in Michael James's shadow, for him to come out and, and be the lead back into I, I believe it was around 1,750 yards. 20 touchdowns. He had that incredibly memorable performance against uh, USC where he rushed for 321 yards, five touchdowns. He had 18 runs that either went for a first down or a touchdown. Like when, when you think of like the peak of, of Oregon's offense and how lethal it used to be, that, that, that 2012 combo is awfully hard to beat, even if it was kind of younger in Marcus Mariota's career. We're talking to Tyson Alger of the I-5 Corridor. I, Dan Lanning, in year one, he's 35. He's never been a head coach before. In your mind, what is a successful season for Dan Lanning? Yeah, it's, it's a tough one to answer because he is taking over a program that is loaded with talent that has been to multiple Pac-12 championships over the last few years. Um, you know, I, I think it's tough to expect a, a first-year head coach to necessarily better what that Mario Cristobal did for the last four years. But I think the success that you want to see from this program is, one, to at bare minimum compete for a Pac-12 championship. Um, you know, I think it's still a little bit too early, and, and we haven't seen enough out of the quarterback position to really know whether or not they should be the front runner in this conference. But, you know, Mario Cristobal recruited his butt off for four years, and they have a lot of that rough roster right now. But I, I think more importantly is just, Whatever happens this season, to have a bit of to have a kind of a clear path and springboard going into the next few years, because if they keep bringing in this level of talent, you know that the level of expectation was to to be a national contender, and, and whether you know I don't expect the Ducks to all of a sudden start competing for national championships here in the next year or two, but I, I do think that we are reaching a level at college football where the people who are going to be on the bus are about to leave. And, and by that, I mean that these top-level teams that have the money and, and kind of the power to, to, to win players over with NIL and exposure and recruiting. And I, I think Oregon's one of those teams. Now they just got to make sure that they, they have their ticket and spot on the bus uh, here after Lane's first year. Tyson Alger with us. Tyson, let's flip the question to Oregon State and Jonathan Smith. What's success for him? He made a bowl game last year. They lost it, took a big step forward. But what's a successful 2022 season? Yeah, I, I think they really got to prove that that last year wasn't a big swoop because if you look at Oregon State's roster, you know, they, they didn't have a huge recruiting class this last year. You know, this hasn't been one of those off seasons where they've been really utilizing the transfer market. You know, the, the bulk of this team is returning uh, from last year's squad and, and seven wins was really impressive last year and it's going to be hard for them to do that again this year. They have a tough non-conference schedule. They have Boise State. I, I believe they have Utah and USC in successive weeks. Um, again, as, as some of the rich get richer in this, this conference in college football, I, I think it would be a heck of a job from Jonathan Smith and his staff to at least 
at least maintain the progress that they made last year. Because while while some teams kind of are getting better by leaps and bounds, whether it be through recruiting or, or other methods, um, it's kind of been the low and slow method with Oregon State and Jonathan Smith, which has worked really well for them. But I'm, I'm curious how that continues to work as, as this landscape changes. Look, I said at the end of last year I thought they needed – uh, a new quarterback to take a step forward, but it looks like Chance Nolan's going to be the guy in spring ball and beyond. It sort of sort of took shape there. Can they win? Can they get to the next level with he with Chance Nolan at quarterback? He's going to have to take some steps. I mean, he's you know they're going to have to get more explosive with the deep ball. You know, I I I, I just feel like that it's it's still one of those questions where you know it could be him, it could be Tristan Gabia, it could be whoever else, and like you just. If he's going to take them to the next level, he's got to have some separation and, and, and be absolutely the guy going into this fall. Um, you know, I did see yesterday he tweeted out that like he signed like the new NIL deal and it's spokesman there, but at least it seems like he's feeling that he's going to be the guy this year and to kind of be a brand. But uh, let's let it happen. You know, if 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 he could, you know, turn the corner and, and take a next step, like Chance Nolan could go down as as one of those names that people remember around. Corvallis for a long time, but he's, he's certainly not there yet. Tyson Alger of the I-5 Corridor is our guest. Tyson, uh, you, you started the I-5 Corridor. You said, you know, you were you were going rogue. You were going outside the box, whatnot. How has that gone? Uh, how has it been received by uh, by people as well? Well, John, I was, I was listening to your intro, and it kind of reminded me, a lot of people remember Lewis and Clark, but I'm pretty sure the people who broke away a couple hundred years later made it a lot more smoothly. Um, so, you know, there, there's part of me that wishes there was a bit more of a highway laid down before I started on this, but man, I'm having a blast. Like, you know, the kind of like set my agenda and, and connect with the stories that, you know, I know my readers like tell it's been refreshing. And then I, I think you're probably experienced experiencing kind of that, that freedom and that, uh, creative energy with, uh, you know, kind of owning your own operation and, and being the one responsible for it. And it, it's, it's definitely presented a lot more challenges than, uh, than I, I probably would have guessed getting into it. Um, you know, I may have, may, maybe should have taken some business classes along the way, but, uh, but <laughs> we're, we're just about approaching one year with the lights on and, and they're, they're still shining. So, so we're here. I appreciate that. You should check out I-5 Corridor. Tyson does a great job there. Tyson, I appreciate you. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks so much, John. Have a good day. There he is, Tyson Alger, I-5 Corridor. And he's right. I am having fun. He's having fun. Um, and here's the thing. Like, you know, I woke up today and I wrote about the LIV golf tournament. I had some extra stuff that I wanted to weigh in with and things I hadn't said yet and uh, some reporting that, you know, uh, I, I found out I got the number uh, Pumpkin Ridge was paid $4.5 million over the next three years to host the LIV event, plus the the uh, the um, improvements to the course were were covered as well under the agreement uh, that I that I uh, obtained. Uh, but here's the thing: every day I wake up, uh, I'm excited to share with you what I know. And somebody asked me, like, you know, they they said you're going, you're, the pace you're riding at is blistering. Like more sports columnists will write three times a week. Uh, I have been writing six times a week for the last three months, and in some cases seven times a week. But it hasn't felt like work to me because I wake up every day 
and I'm excited to share with you what I know and what I've learned and what I'm thinking about. And sometimes it's the ducks, sometimes it's the beavers, sometimes it's the blazers, sometimes it's the Pac-12, sometimes it's my kids. It's off the wall, you know. It's just kind of what I want to share that day. Nobody in my ear telling me, uh, you know, here's what you need to do. Here's what you should do to get more page views or what. You know, I'm just writing, and I'm writing for the people who want to read me. So if you want to read me, go to johnconzano.com. If you want to read Tyson Alger, go to i5corridor.com, uh, and uh, you can check those two things out. And here's the other thing. Somebody else you know, was saying, you know, uh, you, you know, are you ever going to take some time off? Well, yeah, I'll take days off as I need them. But I'm telling you, I got up this morning. And I said, you know what, I need to write this uh, golf tournament stuff. I've got this, and the tournament is this week out at Pumpkin Ridge. But, you know, I've got something no one else has, so I should write this. And the other thing I want to do is it, there are, there are uh, a huge swath of people who have signed up and subscribed. Now, you can subscribe and get a free subscription. You can subscribe and get a paid subscription. You do what's best for you. Um, and here's the cool thing, though. I feel like I want to give you value. Like, I'm working for you. Like, I want to give you who have bought in and invested in me and believed in me and subscribed, I want to give you value. And I wake up every day with kind of that pressure, and that's a good pressure. That's not like a boss who's telling you what to do. That's like me going, you know what? These people have signed up. They've subscribed to read me. I'm going to give them my best. JohnConzano.com if you want to read that. Leave it here. Our big splash is coming up. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. James Harden has declined an option with the Philadelphia 76ers. We're in a crazy world where somebody goes, somebody who wasn't worth $47 million says, you know what, I'm going to decline the $47 million option and become a free agent. Uh, that keeps the possibility for him of negotiating a new deal that would uh, give the Sixers some flexibility with their roster in free agency, would allow them to use a $10.5 million exception. Um, he wants to help them reshape the roster, so I have to think that his opt-out is allowing the Sixers to improve their bench. Uh, but let's see what happens. Uh, teams can start negotiating deals with free agents starting 3 p.m. Pacific time tomorrow. However, those players cannot officially sign until 12.01 p.m. Eastern time on July the 6th. So 9.01 a.m. Eastern Time on July the 6th is when you can officially sign. But you're going to start to see deals uh, tomorrow. People have agreed in principle, etc. James Harden is 32. He turned down he, his $47 million exception. And, uh, you know, we're in an insane world uh, that he has to that he's doing that. But it's the uh, it's a sign of the times. That is not our big splash. Our big splash is something else. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Brought to you by the Exergen Twice Daily Thermometer. I'm going to go with the LIV Golf Tournament out at Pumpkin Ridge Golf Course. What did you know or what did you think when you thought Pumpkin Ridge before? I thought about the U.S. Amateur. 
Tiger Woods, 20 years old, winning a big-time event down the stretch, and then Nike rolling out three days later, uh, introducing Tiger to the world, and Tiger becoming a professional. That's what I used to think about, but now I think about the LIV golf tournament. That's what Pumpkin Ridge wants to be known for, will be known for, is known for going forward. They took the money. I had it this morning at johnconzano.com. Pumpkin Ridge got $4.5 million to host this LIV Invitational three times in the next three years. You're going to see it out at Pumpkin Ridge. They also got some course improvements. They got new decks. They got new roofs. They got paint on the clubhouses at the uh, public course and the members-only course. They also got uh, the infrastructure for the tournament paid for, including security and other things. But this forevermore will be what Pumpkin Ridge Golf Course is known for. They want it to be a great golf course, uh, but fell short of that. And instead, they're going to be known for hosting the LIV Invitational Tournament or LIV event, whatever they're calling the thing. Uh, I think uh, it's uh, really has put the members and it's put the employees out there in a tough position. I don't envy that. I don't think it's their fault that it's happening out there. But uh, there is a uh, golf company in Texas, Escalante Golf, that owns Pumpkin Ridge that uh, took the money. And that's your big splash. Free agency, Judah Newby, let's kick this around. Um, James Harden has declined his $47.3 million option. You got uh, you know Bradley Beal in Washington declining a $36 million option. Um, uh, usually these things are foregone conclusions, but you got some players here that are that are, uh, you know, working the system a little bit. What do you make of all this? The Beal one was inevitable. It looks like he's trying to re-up for the five-year max deal with Washington and stay. Like, that's what all the uh, all the signs are, are pointing to. So him uh, opting out of 36 makes sense. Harden opting out of 47? I don't know what kind of weird relationship he's got with Daryl <laughs> Morey. Obviously, they're boys going back to Houston. I don't know what kind of wink, wink. I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. Stuff's going on, but to turn down forty over forty-seven mil to allow Daryl to build up that roster is, to me, it's an unexpected move out of James Harden, given what we've seemingly known about him. But we'll also see what Daryl does with it. I mean, man, if they capitalize and they're able to bring in another big-time player to Philadelphia, then this was all worth it, and they might have a shot to win the East. Yeah, and I, I think, too, if you're a Blazer fan, it, you're about to get frustrated. This is the time of year, usually it's next week, it's just after the 4th of July, where Blazer fans will lament, hey, how come we're not participating in this free agency? How come we're not we're not getting to do all this stuff? I think if you are a Blazer fan, you uh, you got to be patient here, and, and you got to know that um, some of this is not in the control of Joe Cronin, even the general manager, if he's getting told there are certain things that he can or can't do in free agency, he's obviously looking at looking to uh, the Vulcanites uh, up at uh, up in <laughs> Seattle and going, hey, what do we have to spend here? They don't want to be taxpayers. That's clear. The trade deadline last year told you that as they dropped salary and you know they were also, I think, jockeying a little bit for draft position and trying to tank. But um, I think. Damian Lillard's, the more I think about this, Damian Lillard's Instagram post the other day where he posted himself and Kevin Durant. Um, I think it was a little bit of him recruiting, but I think he was also sending a message like, let's take a big swing. 
I don't think the Blazers are positioned to take a big swing. Now, I would love to be wrong here. I would love to see an exciting season with new players, but something tells me that this team is going to arrive next season counting on Damian Lillard and not C.J. McCollum, but Anthony Simons and Jeremy Grant to carry them in the foreseeable future. And, they're, you know, they're one to two moves short, I think, of being a, a team that's going to matter. And I think I, that stuff always matters. Now, coming up, uh, coming up as you, uh, uh, on, uh, as you look at uh, today's show, Jim Joyce is going to be joining us top of the hour. Now, Judah, you talked to Jimmy Joyce, I think it was last summer, yeah. as part of the Celebrity Golf Tournament that uh, the BFT Foundation runs. He's going to talk to us about umpiring. I'm eager to know, like, the balls and strikes that we have been seeing uh, umpires get wrong. I'm eager to know from a guy who's been back there and called balls and strikes, um, what are we seeing? Why, why does it look so egregious? Why does it look like umpires are struggling so much? What do you want to know? What do you want me to ask Jimmy Joyce coming up? I want to know if it's as bad as it seems. You know, and if uh, if umpiring has qualitatively gotten worse in his eyes, or is it just a result of more exposure? Like any mistake an umpire makes is obviously on Instagram and it's on socials. There's even like Twitter accounts dedicated to scoring umpire performances every yeah. game. You can see, oh, a guy was 99%. Good for him. Oh, a guy was 94%. That's not so good. Uh, I kind of want to know his thoughts on Angel Hernandez. You know, yeah. <laughs> everybody yeah. seems to not like Angel Hernandez, and yet he keeps getting assignments. Like, what's going on? Uh, that You know, things like that. Last year at this time, I asked Jim Joyce all about spider tack. <laughs> that was the rage of the baseball world. He was so good talking about that. He uh, He's going to be good again coming up, and looking forward to seeing him out at the reserve in a couple weeks. Yeah, I'll ask him about that. I want to ask him about the brawls, too. Yeah. Like, what are we – why are – is there more fights, or what causes fights, or what can you do as an umpire when you know these teams are arriving at the stadium and intending that day – to settle something, to police themselves. Like, you know, are the umpires to blame here is what I'm getting at. Jim Joyce is uh, very candid, honest. He'll let it rip. And I'm excited to hear what he has to say here coming up top of the hour uh, after the break here. It's just a quick break. Uh, again, I am broadcasting from Corvallis today. If you want me to come to your town, I want you to tell me where I need to go. At John Canzano BFT on Twitter. Tweet at me, say, hey, take the show and fill in the blank. Uh, I, I'm thinking about doing a week in Eugene. I'm thinking about doing another week in Corvallis. Um, I, uh, I think the show needs to get out. It needs to see people. I met a couple of B loyal BFT listeners today in Corvallis. They said, wait a minute, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm broadcasting today. What are you doing here? And they said, I live here. I said, okay. <laughs> so uh, I, wanna, I want more of those experiences. Leave it right here. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Well, what are we seeing when we watch baseball games today? We're seeing the umpires struggle with strike zones. Is it just social media we have more access to this? Or is it becoming more difficult for umpires to get balls and strikes? Are hitters more reactive than, than ever before? What are we seeing 
Is it that we never before had a rectangle on our screen and now we can see that the ball is two inches low? Like, why can't that umpire see it? I want to bring on Jim Joyce, former Major League Baseball umpire, man of the world, hell of an umpire, and a guy who worked 22 years in the American League and was in baseball uh, wearing the... uh, Wearing the uh, umpire uniform and outfit. And a guy who got to umpire three All-Star games, ten division series, four league championship series. Three times Jim Joyce was in the World Series as an umpire. He's done it as, at a high level is what I'm saying. I want to ask him about that, and I want to ask him about some of the other stuff we're seeing around baseball. Jimmy Joyce joining us now. How are you, sir? Wonderful, sir. How are you, John? I'm doing well, man. It's always good to talk with you. I love getting your your uh, you know you're so candid, and I love getting behind the scenes and really, literally getting inside baseball with you. And I want to start with balls and strikes, if you don't mind. I mean, you've been there. You've been behind the plate. We're seeing hitters in the game today that are jumping around. They're upset that they're not getting good calls. It seems like it's more frequent, but I'm just. I'm skeptical. Maybe, maybe we're just we have access now to more footage and social media. What do you see when you watch games? Well, you're you're probably spot on about the social media part of it, and also the technology part of it. Um, I can give you a little bit of hindsight uh, to the balls and strikes and what we're seeing nowadays is. A hundred years ago when I started and there was no social media and there was no technology, pitchers adopted, or pitchers adopted to the umpires and hitters adopted to the umpires on what they called balls and strikes. They were very, very good at it. And I'm talking about the Wade Boggs, the Don Mattingly, the, at that time Barry Bonds was even junior was really good at it. Those guys learned to hit. I'm going to say something that I might get a little bit of heat for, but in my humble opinion, with the technology that's been put into the game of baseball, and I'm not saying it's good, bad, or indifferent, all I'm saying is is that players aren't, aren't stupid. They learn that the umpires have to call a certain parameter nowadays, and they are in tune to that, and hitters are no longer – in my humble opinion, hitting that pitch that's two inches off the plate to right field or the left-handed batter hitting the pitch that's three inches off the plate to left left field like Wade Boggs and Don Mattingly used to do. And so they're waiting for perfect pitches now, or at least semi-perfect pitches. Now, I've been out of the game for six years now, or six seasons, and I can also tell you another thing is that don't believe that rectangle that's on TV every night. Mm. No, it's 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 not all it's made out to be. To be very honest with you, give me an idea there. You're behind the plate, and you know you see that rectangle uh, later when you're calling a game. Like, what are what what is the uh, the the well, let me let me illusion let me give you an idea. Yeah, let me give you an idea about it. Okay, we sit and replay. And we have both feeds to the game. And this was on, as a matter of fact, talking about social media, this was on social media the other day. We get both feeds, the home feed and the away feed, while you're sitting in in replay in New York. A pitch will come in, and they have the box on both 
on both feeds, you know, one feed for, let's just say, Atlanta, one feed for the Dodgers. The pitch at some in, in some instances come in different. One pitch will say a strike, one pitch will say a ball. Hmm. And I sat there and watched it. And we've, we've commented about it, or I should say umpires have com, 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 uh, commented about it to the, quote-unquote, the office. And in my opinion, they don't want to mess with TV. TV's got a good thing going with that strike zone and everything like that, and everybody believes it. But uh, I can tell you behind the scenes, and I don't know if they'll – <laughs> get mad at me for this, but sometimes that box is not what it's made out to be. That's fascinating. That's it. are the umpires upset about this, to, or is the, are they just looking at it like, hey, it's just the times? No, actually, I, I don't. It, they're not really upset about it, or we were not. A, we're, we were not upset about it because we are graded by Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball has their own system called ZE. And they grade off of that. Uh, that's in every ballpark in the country. So it's it's set. It's set to every ballpark, and there's 30 of them in every city. And personally, that is a much higher quality system um, than what I don't know what they call K zone or whatever like that. And Major League Baseball actually evaluates each umpire off of that system. And that's why you see on you know, on social media, uh, you know, people blast Angel Hernandez for calling a pitch four inches off the plate. Well, you know what? That pitch actually in the replay center and on ZE might only be an inch off the plate, which is actually in the parameters of calling it a strike anyway. And so uh, you really, first of all, the umpires aren't going to come out and, and, and say what I'm saying about it because, uh, you know, they're still working. So, but I can give you an I can give you an honest opinion on it that uh, they say, or at least the averages average out to be that umpires only miss two to four pitches a game. Wow. So, uh, if you want to put in robo umpires because of that, they miss two or four, four or even six pitches a game. You know, it's very rare that they miss them at the, cru- at the crucial uh, part of the game. And if they did, why don't they just challenge the pitch? Uh, instead of, you know, wanting to put in a, a robo-umpire, because that happens, uh, I'll never watch baseball again. Yeah, give me an idea, you know, because we have d- discussed that. I don't want ro- I don't want computers calling the balls and strikes. I don't want a robot calling the balls and strikes. I, I sort of like the human element of it, but uh, how much pressure do you think uh, umpires in general are getting to move towards technology like that? Quite a bit. I, I know for a fact they're uh, actually it's actually in their contract that uh, baseball can move to technology when it's proven and it's viable for the game. And uh, the, one of the reasons they haven't put it in yet because it's not completely proven yet. And but me personally, uh, the the element, the human element out of the game for just a couple of pitches per game makes absolutely no sense to me. Baseball was, <laughs> and here I'm going to be talking about something that. Everybody wants to make perfect. Uh, imagine that. But, you know, the game is not perfect. It was it was never meant to be perfect, to be honest with you. Um, and, and this is just in my lifetime, you know, where I went from basically um, 
just doing what I do and, and the league having faith in an umpire to go out there and call a good game to all the way through now the technology part of this game. And it was a lot more fun back then than when I retired. Jim Joyce, our guest, former Major League Baseball umpire. Uh, you were in the World Series multiple times. You were in uh, a whole bunch of All-Star games as well. Uh, quite an honor. As an umpire, when you get that call to be in a World Series, you know, there has to be a moment where you're like, okay, this is great, pat on the back. But then here comes the first pitch. You kind of got to drill down and just call it like you call any other great game. Is Can you call World Series games the same, or are the umpires as tight as the teams? Um <laughs> You know, it's one of those things that everybody wants the World Series, and all of a sudden you get it and go, uh-oh. You know, <laughs> I, I, I hope I'm up to the task. And I can be very honest with that, too, because my last World Series in 2013 with the uh, Red Sox and the St. Louis Cardinals, I, I, I bared down on that one. I mean, I'm talking about when I went to work the plate game six um, in Boston, I, I mean, I thought about what I was going to do that whole day, and my wife was with me, and she said, you know, this is kind of boring just sitting around, and I said, you know what, babe, go ahead and go out and see the sights, but um, I'm focusing on this tonight. That's one day in my life, and I'm going to focus on this, and I went out, and I, I, I think I had a really, 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 probably one of my best played jobs ever, and I know that's a little egotistic but uh i'll just be honest i thought i had a really good one so give me an uh, idea though yeah jim hold on there because like we we always talk to athletes about that and athletes will talk about hey i was relaxed i was really seeing the ball well when you're umpiring behind the plate and you have a great game (laughs) is it moving slower than maybe the games where you struggle a little bit or what's going on um, I just think you're more in tune to your surroundings and everything else that's going on around you. Uh, David Ross was the catcher from Boston at the time. And I remember the first two pitches I called in the game that night, David turned to me and said, Jimmy, are you going to be there all night? And I j- and they're kind of like on the borderline low end. And, you know, we also have ZE for the playoffs. So, you know, I'm getting charted on every pitch I call. And I said, David, yep, I'm staying right there. And at the end of that game, of course, Boston won. David turned around to me, and he just tapped me on my chest protector, and he said, that was awesome. That's the biggest reward I got out of that. And, um, you know, Molina was the other catcher, and he's kind of quiet. Um, so the only thing I had with Molina was that play in the uh, seventh inning when I had the three – Red Sox behind me, everybody's calling uh, Johnny Gomes safe at the plate. So, But I was really in tune to it. I mean, it was one of those ones where everything fell in place all night. Everything was just, you know, going well. And the pitchers were pitching, hitters were hitting, and there was hardly any errors. You know, there was no boots or anything like that. And it was actually – being in tune, but it was also fun at the same time. And I, I don't mean ha-ha fun. I mean, when you do your job well, that's fun to me. Jim Joyce with us. You mentioned Angel Hernandez. He becomes a lightning rod for criticism. How much yep. of it is merited? How much do, uh, the, do the average fan or media member not understand about what's going on in the field when Angel Hernandez is out there? 
quite a bit, I believe. Uh, Angel's a good umpire, um, and it, I don't care if people don't believe me or not. And uh, with the social media and everything, Angel's been picked on his whole career, and I don't know why. Once you get a reputation, it's hard, especially a bad reputation, it's hard to get out of that. And, I mean, I, you can go back and look at some of the calls that Angel's made in the playoffs. Angel made a call in the playoffs where there was no tag at the plate, and everybody's scrambling around the plate and everything, and Angel's right there doing the right thing. He was textbook, and nobody said a word about it after, after that play. And it was probably one of the best calls, you know, in the playoffs uh, that year. And um, a lot of it, maybe he brings up on himself by his attitude. I don't, you know, I don't know Angel real well, but I, I know that if he's in the major leagues, he's a pretty good umpire. Jim Joyce with us, longtime major league umpire. You saw him in the World Series. You saw him in all-star games. Jim, we're seeing brawls, and we saw it kind of out of that shortened spring training, and I wondered, were pitchers struggling to grip the ball? Was it control? What are we seeing? Because it feels like there are more fights right now than maybe in the middle of your era, or maybe we're just seeing it more because it's on TV. I think that's part of it, seeing it more because every game's on TV, every pitch is on TV now. Social media is going to keep playing, replaying it all the time. I actually saw the last brawl with the, the Mariners and the Angels, and they have a history. I mean, you know, uh, it's, a, uh, it, it's a good rivalry, and they have a history. Uh, but this last one was uh, a little nastier. It, uh, it took on a beast of its own at that time. And, you know, I've seen some really good ones, but the majority of the fights in baseball are the grabbing of the jersey and just kind of, Picking a dance partner, so to speak, and but this one, this one kind of stood out a little bit. There was a little bit to it, and um, I also think it's the climate we live in today. We're in a very volatile climate these days, and I think that might have a little bit to do with it. Um, you're not going to tell me what to do, and you're not going to yell at me. And um, I've seen it with the umpires too, uh, where the umpires are are instructed to you know, turn the other cheek, so to speak. And um, I always listen to a player's gripes. If they had a concern, I'd listen to it. But it seems like they're barking a lot more now instead of just getting up there and playing the game of baseball. And it was evident uh, with this Mariners Angels fight that. It was. It spilled over from the night before. Media members right. were talking about it. People at the stadium were talking about it. I'm sure the umpires were tuned into it. What do you do Absolutely. in that situation? Let's say you're behind the plate. You know there's been you know some nonsense that happened the night before. What can you do as an umpire? Well, actually, uh, it, determining on what the league might do, the league might even step in, and uh, when I was a crew chief, they might give me a call and say, Jimmy, you got the Mariners and the Angels tonight. They've had problems in the past. Just We're just giving you a heads up. Just be aware of it. And said, okay. Okay. Actually, it happened to me in Kansas City one time with Oakland. And it, it was a three-night ordeal. And it, was, it carries over from day to day to day. And usually what happens is um, – you will meet at the plate and say, okay, boys, I hope we have a good one tonight and kind of give that wink, wink. And 
you know, that's the first night. Let's just see what happens. Okay, somebody gets blasted. They both get their get their shots in. And then oh, I usually would do was maybe even give the managers a call and say, uh, we're done with this, right? And, you know, usually the answer is yes. Well, it didn't happen in Kansas City because I knew right away there was going to be some problems. And especially when a hitter hits a, a 3-0 pitch in the, in the seats and turns the game into a blow-on, I knew the next guy was going to get drilled. And you have a sense of what's going on out there, and sometimes it's easy to pick out when it's going to happen, and sometimes it just happens and you don't even know there was a problem before. So you let them know sometimes, okay, this is over. This is done. And uh, the guys, I'm sure, in Seattle uh, had some words with the managers, or at least the league probably had some words with the managers, obviously because Phil Nevin took them. Uh, he, he had a pretty big penalty. Yeah, and I I also think, like, when when the fight is happening, you know, everybody's leaving the dugout. You even saw the interpreter leave the dugout in that Angels game, and everybody's yep. kind of, like you said, they're picking dance partners or whatnot. But as an umpire, what do you do there, Jim? Because it's not like you're going to hold back, you know, both rosters and everybody running in from the bullpen. <clears throat> back in the day, we tried to do that. We actually tried to get in between them and stop it and even try to catch the hitter before he got to the mound or in the, in the Mariner incidents going to the dugout. Uh, we actually used to try to step in and literally try to stop it. Uh, too many guys were getting hurt, though. We were actually getting hurt during that. Uh, my humble opinion is that I, I don't have a problem if you want to mix it up a little bit, but if I was in charge – there would not be one pitcher that comes out of that bullpen. And if he does, he's going to be suspended for at least one game. Anybody that comes out of the dugout, just like in hockey, you come off that bench, you're getting whacked. You're going to get suspended, and you're going to lose money at it. When they start taking money out of their paychecks, that's that's when this stuff will stop. I love that. Jim Joyce <laughs> with us. Jim, uh, you are participating in the 10th Annual Celebrity Golf Tournament. I appreciate you doing it. It'll be on July 14th at the Reserve. Why is that important for you to help kids in the community that uh, will be able to you know, play musical instruments and play sports that uh, they, they may not otherwise be able to do? That's exactly the reason. You, you said it perfect right there. I do it because if my minor celebrity status We'll get somebody out there to help these kids. I will do it until the day I can't swing a golf club. And then I'll even do it afterwards. I'll ride in the cart with somebody. I don't know if they want to sponsor me, but I'll ride in the cart as long as I can, as long as I can walk on that out to the cart and just have a good time the whole day. I will be there. As long as you invite me, I will be there every time. Jim Joyce, you're the best. Thank you, man. And thanks for sharing your expertise. I feel smarter after talking to you. Well, don't believe everything you hear. <laughs> Jimmy Joyce, thank you. I'll see you. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. See you in a little bit, John. Thanks All for right. the invite. There he is. Jim Joyce, former Major League Baseball umpire, worked the World Series several times, worked some All-Star games. I love that, uh, that expertise, so to speak, inside baseball. Leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth statewide. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. 
One of the things that I said when I arrived in this state nearly 20 years ago, it was my second tour. Don't be like, hey, you're not native. I'm native. I was born in Medford, Oregon. But uh, when I arrived back here 20 years ago, one of the things that I noted was that the expectations of the sports fans here were very modest. If you were a Beaver fan, you had been through years of losing. Uh, no bowl games, uh, really sporadic uh, success. Dennis Erickson and Mike Riley had raised the bar, sure, but there was uh, there was a whole bunch of losing seasons. And, and Oregon fans, look, you had gone through some stuff too. I talked to Oregon fans who said they never had to – worry about not having a ticket like the stadium was half full for football games and very modest expectations uh blazer fans had a championship in 77 and had flirted with an uh, nba title in the clyde drexler years but by and large it was the 2000 western conference finals meltdown that had short sort of haunted uh, the sports market and haunted sports fans in the market uh but the uh the expectations were really low. So I want to say something here that I hope you take to heart, and I hope that you take into the next sports season. If you're a Duck fan, do not lower the bar. Do not lower your expectations. Do not say things like, you know what, we've had a bunch of uh, BCS bowl games, and we've had some college football playoff experience, a couple of appearances there, one time getting into the uh, – uh, national championship game against Ohio State, and then Chip Kelly in 2011, last uh, BCS era championship game, got the Ducks there, and you know played uh, played two playoff games. And don't don't lower the expectations. I know Vegas is telling you that Dan Lanning's program should win about eight and a half games this season. I'm uh, I'm saying that line's about right. I think if he wins nine, it's a really successful season in my mind. But I'm going to ask our guest coming up, Julian Minnesone from uh, KEZI and Eugene, what his expectations are for Dan Lanning and maybe next season and then bigger picture stuff with Dan Lanning. And same thing for Oregon State. Don't lower your expectations and just make the goal this year the same goal that it was last year. Don't just say, hey, getting to a bowl game would be really great. Yeah, of course it would be great if you got to a bowl game. That's the model that Oregon State used for years to keep people coming back. But don't just say, hey, that's it. Getting to a bowl game, that sure would be great. But that's not all. And Blazer fans, come on, raise the bar for this team. I'm saying they have to be fun and entertaining. And for me, fun and entertaining means that's a playoff team. That's a team that is fun to go see. Uh, on Friday or Saturday night, you're at, you're at Moda Center, and you're like, this is the place to be. That's fun and entertaining. It's not settling. It's not lowering the expectations. Don't do that. I'm not going to do it. I hope you don't do it either. Our guest, Julian Minnesone, KEZI, coming up after the break. It's true with John Canzano on 750 The Game. There's been a whole bunch of track and field going on in Eugene. I, th- I don't think we're supposed to call it the new Hayward Field, but it is the it is the new Hayward Field. It had a big renovation. Looks amazing. Best track and field facility in the United States. We'll host the World Championships uh, coming up in a few weeks in July. But there is uh, there has been a whole bunch of events that have gone on at Hayward Field. 
world, uh, the U.S. championships, the state high school track and field championships, the Pac-12 championships. Julian Minnesota, KEZI sports anchor and reporter, has been around a lot of it. I'm bringing him in here because he's turned into a track and field junkie for how much he's had to be at Hayward Field. Julian, give us an idea. What has that felt like to you with all the track and field going on at Hayward Field? Well, number one, John, thanks for having me. But, yeah, I think I I should start paying rent over there at, at Hayward because I feel like I've been there pretty much every week for days on end, living on concession food and, and the smell of the, the Hayward field for the last few weeks to a month now. And so um, it, it's just been really exciting. I mean, the, the World Championship is going to be such a huge thing. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be a big boom for the city, for the state. And um, it's just kind of giving people – these events have been kind of giving people a little bit of an appetizer uh, of what they can expect before the main course that, that is World. Um, but every time I go into Hayward, it, it always feels like it's the first time because it's, it's just – just a draw, a jaw-dropping place to be. I mean, like sometimes I just find myself just walking around, just the concourse and just taking it all in. It's it's pretty unbelievable, and it's going to be an unreal sight um, this time next month. Julian, let me ask you: Is there an exhaustion? Because I noted the crowds for the for the U.S. Championships were not what they expected. Is there an exhaustion? Are people waiting for the World Championships? What do you think's happening on, with spectators? Yeah, I think people are kind of just gearing up for the world championships. Um, you know, it, it was also, also extremely hot, at least for the USA championships, so maybe that had something to do with it because as you get closer to the track, as I'm sure you know, it's, it's, it's that much hotter. But, you know, I think just the, the fact that maybe when a lot of the athletes from over 190 countries, you know, 2,000 athletes come here from all over um, the world, all different walks of life, I think, I think it's going to be night and day with the crowds. Um, that are coming in for uh, for the for the world championships. I think it's going to be a, a totally different ball game there. Give me an idea because you know you've seen track at different places, but what is it that, at Hayward Field that makes it special? You know they always talk about that Hayward magic, I guess, but it's it's almost like going into to Disneyland. Um, at least in my opinion, you know when you go to Disneyland, it just feels different than maybe some of the other theme parks around the country. There's just kind of like an aura there. And, and I think when you step into Hayward Field, you know, every city in this country that's at least one of the, some of the more recognizable ones has something that they could point to and say, yes, that is an identifier of that city. You know, in Seattle, you have the Space Needle. Um, you know, you have the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. And I think when you step into Hayward Field, there's an aura there that you say, yep, I'm in Eugene. I'm in where this track and field, this sport was born. I'm, I'm in where it's been great and all the legends have come through here. I'm in Eugene, Oregon. I think that's, that's something that's so specific, and a lot of the people here in the community take a lot of pride in still to this day, and um, I think that's apparent as soon as you step through those gates. Julian Menasone, KEZI, is with us. College football, I've been talking a little bit about it. Dan Lanning will have his first year, first-time head coach. What's a successful year for Lanning? You know, I was listening to your segment prior, and I do think I do think around nine wins or so would be a successful year. Um, you know, you're coming into a season where, number one, you have Utah, who's going to be really good again. You're going to have a USC team with Lincoln Riley, and a lot of people are excited about that. But I do think still, if you are Oregon, you are still, no matter who the coach is, you are one of the premier programs in this conference. And I think if you can get to maybe nine or ten wins, 
and get to a Pac-12 championship game and compete for for uh, that Pac-12 championship title, I think that would constitute a, a successful season. Um, I, I don't think, you know, I heard you talk about, you know, fans not lowering their expectations, and I don't think they should lower them. You're getting a, a head coach who is, who is a defensive coordinator on one of the best defenses that has ever been assembled just won a national championship. Um, I think the big thing for this Oregon team this year is going to be finding out what that identity is under this new regime because I think for the last few years, past the Herbert and past the Troy Dye kind of leadership role era when they won the Rose Bowl, I think this team has kind of had a little bit of an identity crisis of we have a certain leader, we have a face of this team, we have guys that we can look to, we have staples in this program, um, and, I, and I think that's going to be a lot of soul-searching and, and kind of finding their identity this year. But if they can get that and maybe get to a Pac-12 championship game and maybe win that, I think that would, that would constitute itself as a successful season. The opener at Georgia, um, it, it feels like it's going to be a big game for him. I, my, my sense is that Oregon will play Georgia closer than people expect. But if they get blown out in that game – it, does that set a bad tone, or what? You know, we saw Chip Kelly lose to Boise State bad in his opener. Like, I don't know if you can put too much in an, into an opener, but what are you looking for in that game? Yeah, you know, I'm looking for if Oregon is able to keep it close, be competitive throughout, and if they are to lose, you know, lose by 14 to 17, I think that's a win in itself. Um, if they are to get blown out, I don't think it's the end of the world either. It's not the best start and probably not the start landing would like. Um, also, you know, given that he is coming from there and he's going back to, to Georgia to face his old team, he probably wants to do really well and has a highlighter all over that game. But if you do get blown out, there are a lot of great opportunities for the rest of the season to prove that you are the guy for this job. I mean, just two weeks after that, you got BYU who's no pushover. You got all your best games, at least your marquee matchups, in my opinion, at home this year. So you'll be in front of your your, your home crowd for those games, and you'll be able to, to show them what you guys can do and that, that maybe if that you get blown out, that first game isn't indicative of who you really are. Um, so I'll give a little bit of slack to Dan Lanning on that first game against Georgia. I don't think it's going to be the end of the world, but I do agree with you. I think the Ducks are going to show up because if there's an, at a time where you can punch Georgia in the mouth or teams like that in the mouth, it's early in the college football season. Yeah, you got to get them early. I think it, we saw that in Ohio State with Week Two last year. They were a much better team, I thought, uh, by the time they got to the Rose Bowl against Utah. Um, you know, I, I, there is, there is a little bit of exhaustion, I think, in the Eugene market with the World Championships in track and field, but season ticket sales for football are also a little soft. Uh, the athletic department still pushing those. Uh, they're not where they have been in years past. Why do you think that is? Well, I think, number one, um, you have, though you do have a championship coach coming in, um, I do think there is some uncertainty with this team. I think with a new head coach, you don't necessarily know how they're going to play. I, I mean, the spring game was a great turnout, but they don't show everything of how the team is really going to be in a spring game. That's number one. And I think it goes back to what I was talking about earlier. Since Justin Herbert and, and, uh, and Troy Dye left, there hasn't been really one guy that you can point to, I think, on the Oregon teams over these last few years where you're like, you know, take the personality of that guy. He's our leader. Um, he's the guy that when you think of Oregon, that's who you think about. I think there, there's a little bit of a leadership kind of thing that needs to 
show itself this year with players stepping up into that role. Um, you know, you had a lot of players either go into the draft, um, like Kayvon and, and Barone. Um, so I think there's just a little bit of uncertainty of what this team is actually going to look like. And maybe that's kind of making Ducks fans a little bit hesitant or reserved um, when it comes to putting their money in season tickets. At that same time, though, I do think a lot of the better home games this year are at Austin Stadium. With, aside from Georgia on the road, you know, you have BYU, you got Stanford, you got Washington, Utah. All your tougher games and the more marquee matchups are at home. So um, I ultimately do think maybe when, when Ducks fans see the kind of team that Lanning could put together, um, I think those numbers will certainly change. Um, but I do think there is some hesitancy right now just because there's a lot of unknowns with this, with this Oregon program at the moment. We're talking to Julian Minnesota, KEZI. Before I cut you loose, Julian, let's pivot to Oregon State. Jonathan Smith got to a bowl game. Um, what is the expectation there for a successful season? And and uh, let me ask you this: Can they can they have a full successful season with Chance Nolan at quarterback? You know, I do think they can. I think the expectation, and, and, you know, Jonathan Smith has harped on this ever since that season ended in the L.A. Bowl against Utah State. I I don't think they're going to be a program where they're going to say, you know what, we're just happy to be here. You know, let's get to a bowl game, and that's good enough for us, and that'll get enough tickets sold for next year, and we'll just keep this train moving like that. I I think this program ultimately – in order to take that next step, is going to have to consistently be a Pac-12 team that gets the bowl game. Not every year when the Vegas odds come out, oh, you know, are, are we on the bowl line border of, of what Vegas thinks, or are we going to be way under? I think this team, that's, that's kind of the next evolution of this Jonathan Smith era. Um, I do think that they can get there with a chance, Nolan, you know, another year um, with him as, as, as the quarterback, another year wiser. Um, kind of knows what to expect. You get you get to a bowl game, and you kind of get that experience under the belt, and and that's invaluable. And um, I do think ultimately you want to get to bowl games consistently year after year, but you also want to win those games too. And I think that's kind of the next step for Jonathan Smith. Instead of just saying, you know what, a bowl game that's enough for the players, that's enough for me. Um, you know, we'll have it at that. Julian Minnesota K E Z I. Follow him on Twitter. Catch him on KEZI and on this show occasionally. Julian, thank you for your time, my friend. Of course, John. Anytime, man. All right. Good stuff there. If you are a uh, fan of football, track and field, you got you all covered there. Punch it audio still ahead, plus the five at five. You got the bald face truth statewide. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750, the game. I was just looking at future football schedules for Oregon and Oregon State. We know who they're playing this year. I was looking at a year beyond at 2023. The non-conference games that uh, Oregon State has scheduled is at San Jose State for the opener uh, in 2023. Then then they get UC Davis at home on September 9th. And then uh, they get San Diego State at home. The scheduling model there is true to what Scott Barnes, the athletic director at Oregon State, has said he wanted to do. He wanted to play games uh, against 
uh, teams that they could beat. They did not want to play payday games against the Ohio states of the world. But I think it's really interesting to see in 2023 that what Oregon State does is they uh, seemingly move uh, full force into the model that begins really this year with the schedule that includes Boise State. That is, you know, it's one game against, uh, you know, a Mountain West Conference opponent or opponent that at San Diego State's no slouch uh, coming off a pretty pretty decent year in which they beat a couple of Pac-12 teams. But it's not like playing Ohio State, right? So uh, Scott Barnes has said he that's something he wants to do moving forward. And in 2022, 2023, that's what Oregon State is going to do. Now, Oregon State historically has been slow starting. They lost the opener to Purdue last year. But I think it's really going to be interesting to uh, to see if Oregon State, for the first time in a long time, can start the non-conference schedule with a win and go 3-0 and in those first three games. They get Boise State at home, and they go to Fresno State in the second week, and then they go to play uh, Montana State at Providence Park in Portland in week three of this season. 3-0 and is on the table. Also, Boise State and Fresno State are not bad, so Oregon State better come to play. Meanwhile, the Ducks, uh, if, if you look at schedules moving forward, we all know they're going to open this season against Georgia. Uh, next season, though, in 2023, it'll be Portland State in the opener on September 2nd. It will be at Texas Tech in Week 2 uh, in Lubbock, Texas. So they'll go on the road to Texas Tech, and then it'll be Hawaii in Week 3 at home. So, again, Oregon shifting a little bit in their model uh, beginning in 2023 with no uh, big-ticket game on the horizon if the schedule stays true to what it is right now. And, of course, that is what Oregon is planning to do moving forward because in 2024, Oregon will play at Hawaii in the opener, then get Idaho at home, then get Texas Tech at home, then they will play uh, a Boise State game, a fourth game, at home because of the uh, the Hawaii game, they get to play a fourth game at home, and uh, they will uh, end up getting to play an extra game there. So a nice home schedule. But uh, Dan Lanning, if he is the coach at, at Oregon in a couple years, and I presume he will be, has a chance there with a 4-0 and start. So a, a definite shift in how they're going to schedule. Now keep in mind, this can all be dumped on its head. At a moment's notice, is the Pac-12 conference and George Klyovkov have said, look, they want to play these games, they want to play these big games, they want to play these challenging games where they have an opportunity to to face off against uh, perennial powers like Georgia and Ohio State in the last two years. But keep an eye on the scheduling moving forward for these programs. Conversely, I'm always interested in what Portland State is doing. And if you are a uh, Portland State fan... You know that uh, they will uh, they'll get the Oregon Ducks next season in 2023. They'll play that road game to open the season. Uh, they will uh, in 2024 get to play uh, against Oregon, or excuse me, Washington State. Uh, that is in in their their season opener, and in 2025. Uh, Portland State currently has Oregon State on the schedule, so they're wanting to kind of rotate between. Oregon, Oregon State, Washington, Washington State, uh, and they'll get the Ducks again in 2026. So uh, I like that that Oregon and Oregon State are scheduling those games. I don't want to see them play Portland State every year, but I like that they kind of alternate, or maybe uh, it's every third year. I like that because it keeps the money 
in state. And by the money, I mean that $500,000 payday that Oregon will play, pay Montana or Montana State or Sacramento State or whoever to UC Davis in the case of Oregon State. That that $500,000 payday, by the way, those those numbers, those payday games have been escalating. Uh, it, it's a uh, it's money that I like to see given to Portland State first, or at least Portland State has the option there to take that take that payday. So I, I think that's always interesting to kind of track that and uh, and see what happens with that. Um, I also think if you are somebody who is uh, you know following uh, college football uh, that you want to see your team play big games, but we also don't know what's going to happen with the playoff. And I think that's always interesting. Now, Stephen, you are running the board today. Do I need to take a break here? Do I need one more, or am uh, I good to no, go to the top you of the good. hour? You are good until okay. uh, 59, 35. I got, I got wrapped up in my, my uh, football scheduling thing. And let me ask you this, Stephen, because, yeah. you know, we don't know you. We don't know your <laughs> interests. We just, we're barely getting to know you. Yeah. Would you rather see your team? Who's your team, by the way? You know what, John, this is a funny answer. I don't really have it. Like, the Blazers, I grew up around here in Portland, so the Blazers are always my team growing up. Uh, but then I worked for the Blazers, and so when I got let, let go by them, uh, you know, the, the fandom and the emotion kind of went away, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, it does. But- I, just, I didn't have that love for them anymore. So uh, I'm a big better. So more of my teams is just who am I betting on. So I try to – I'm so, totally unbiased yeah. everywhere. So you are a fan of your bank account. Yeah, exactly. That's what, That's <laughs> where we come back to. What's it like to work for the Blazers? Uh, it's a lot of fun. I mean, I worked uh, I worked in their scouting department and as a video analyst, so uh, it was uh, staying at home and watching 40 hours a week of basketball and just breaking down video. So, you know, can't ask for much better than that. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, you probably got got your fill of, you know, you, you saw a lot, right? Yeah. And, and so what would happen when you would break that down? Are the players getting that video or are the coaches getting that video? What happens to that video? Yeah, so I was like the... I was like the bottom of the totem pole, right? So I was doing like the initial breakdown, and then I was sending it off to my boss, who was then breaking it down even more, and then it would go off to the assistant coaches and the scouts, uh, and then eventually to the coaching staff, because it was a lot of for the upcoming opponents. So we had a had a system where you know, you claimed the game that you wanted to watch, and it was mostly just the upcoming opponents that they were playing. So say the Blazers were playing the Lakers later on in the week, all the games they wanted to watch were every single Laker game from the season so far. So if it's midway through the year, you know, we want to watch games, you know, 39 through 1 for the Lakers and see what they're doing. It's fascinating. Were you did you get tired of looking at basketball or does does it never get old? Well, it was it like weird, that? John, because it was like, you know, I'd spend eight, nine hours a day watching basketball as my job, and then it's like six o'clock and well, basketball's on TV. So then I go and I watch basketball more. So like it, it did get tiring, but I will say it, it makes it so I watch the game differently. Like that's the one thing I took away from it. Yeah, I think uh, for people who have worked inside organizations, it does kind of suck the fan out of you, like it really does. But uh, in a college football context, there's part of me, the journalist in me, the sports media person, the columnist in me, the radio show host in me, I like seeing Oregon play Georgia. I like seeing Oregon play Ohio State. I Hell, I like to Oregon State playing Oklahoma State, you know, last couple years. But I understand with the college football playoff potentially expanding that what we're seeing in the future schedules is we're seeing these teams schedule games that they can win. You're not there's no Ohio State, there's no Georgia, there's no LSU, there's no Auburn on Oregon's schedule after this Georgia game happening this year. And I think if if Rob Mullins would would speak to that, I think he would say, "Look, we don't know what the playoffs going to look like, and we don't know whether it would be in our best interest to even play those games." 
in a system where you have an expanded playoff field. And in fact, it looks like it it would be better just to win as many games as you possibly you know, possibly could have. Like, you know, how many games do you think you can win and, and play those and schedule those opponents? Jerry Palm, who consults with a bunch of conferences, has told the men's basketball teams, schedule the games you know you can win. The best the best opponent you think you can beat. Because you don't want losses. And I think in an expanded playoff field, conference champions would be awarded. Uh, but I also think when you talk about those at-large berths, they're going to go to teams that have great records, and they're going to go to teams who have who have won big games. So I I don't think the ads really know, and I think what we are seeing with football schedules in 2023, 2024, 2025, and beyond, we're seeing them schedule with kind of a I'm not sure what we're going to be doing mentality. Leave it here. Five at five coming up next. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Happy hour is upon us. So much to talk about. I got a bunch of things I want to get to. We'll do the five at five. But Mark and Canby has been patiently holding... And he has an important question that he wants to ask. Really important question. Let me uh, let me punch him up here, Mark and Canby. Thank you for your patience. I appreciate you waiting, Mark. Mark, what's on your mind? I, I'm just dying laughing. Okay, I'm sitting in traffic. Um, okay, you put the milk in, and then you put the cereal. Right. Okay. Now, here's my other my other uh, spot. Let, let's say you put the the cereal in, and then you put the milk, and you get done with the cereal. You right. still have the milk left over. What What do you do? Are you gonna add more milk and then more cereal, or are you gonna add more cereal and then milk on top? I usually this is just me, Mark. And so I think what you're asking is, should we put the milk in first should we put the cereal in first and then if there's milk left over you know you got a whole problem like you know i i understand why this has has you jammed up like this <laughs> needs to be dealt with right now here's what here's what i would say See, I'm congress, gonna, congress I'm, needs to address this all right look i got three daughters and this is a regular problem and a bigger problem yet mark is when i pour them a bowl of cereal and they go that's not enough cereal and i pour more in and then they don't eat it that bothers me even more. But but here's here's what I say. Generally, I will put in the cereal first. I think when you put the cereal in first, you're avoiding a splash. There's a big problem if you just pour milk into a bowl. Sometimes you lose some milk. I also think it um it it keeps the uh you know, it keeps the uh, cereal, like the cereal's put in, and then right away when I go in for those first bites, the cereal's nice and crunchy. You know, it isn't soggy yet. So yeah, I yeah, think yeah. I think cereal first, and then milk, and then I always will keep the box handy because I know I'm going to end up with milk left over. Then I'll just pour a little bit more cereal in, because you can't just drink the milk out of the bowl like savages. You you gotta have you gotta finish it off with some cereal. Does that help at all? I don't know if I helped you. <laughs> you helped me. You helped me. Yeah. All right. yeah. Where are you in traffic, by the way? 
Wilsonville. All right. What, what do you want? Uh, you on I-5? Yeah, I'm on the 5 north of Wilsonville. So. All right. Give people, uh, give people a traffic report. Are you heading north or south? And uh, what are you? Is it bad? South. South. Okay. We're uh, cruising, you know, like two. So, you know. All right. Well, I'm glad you're here listening. It'll go faster because you're listening to this show. Stephen, are you a cereal in the bowl or a milk in the bowl first person? Well, yeah, I, I got some hot takes on this. I'm a, I'm a cereal in the bowl first because I thought it was well known to everybody that there's that sweet spot, right, where the cereal has some milk, like, inside of it, but it's also crunchy, like you said. And so you, yeah. it's that, you know, that one to two minute sweet spot that you get. So if you put the milk in first, the top of the cereal is not going to be covered in milk at all. Yeah, you're right. And I think it's weird if you put in milk first. Who puts milk into a bowl first? Yeah, that's just kind of some psycho behavior, isn't it, John? Yeah, it is. It's like when you have coffee. You don't put the cream in an empty cup and then pour the coffee in, do you? No. Or maybe we should be. Maybe we should be doing that. Like with ice, do you put the drink in first and the ice on top? No, you put the ice in first. Yeah, you got to put the ice in first. You got to put the cereal in the bowl first. Um, and then uh, I think that's a pretty easy one. All right, let's do the five at five. Five biggest stories going on in the whole world of sports. The five at five. Well, let's start with uh, Texas. Longhorns coach Steve Sarkeesian has added a wide receiver to his recruiting hall. Jonte Cook the second became the latest to join Texas. He was the number 43 overall player, wide receiver out of DeSoto, Texas. Ninth player to commit to Sarkeesian in Texas since Arch Manning made his decision just a week ago. Cook told 24-7 Sports, with Arch Manning, nobody's going to be able to fool with me and him. <laughs> I love that. He's already recruiting using Arch Manning. Have they even met each other? But it is our number one story at the 5 at 5. Steve Sarkeesian having some success in the recruiting world. When you get one domino to fall, others fall after. Everybody knows that. Second thing, number two in our kind of, sort of, five most important things going on. Let's talk about James Harden. James Harden declined a 43 our $47.3 million player option. He's now a free agent. Adrian Wojnarowski reporting that today. But what happens here is it's not what, what uh, the eyes may tell us. Harden keeps alive the possibility that he returns to the 76ers. He's giving them some roster-building flexibility in free agency. They'll have the $10.5 million exception. They'll also have a $4 million biennial exception. And they'll be able to complete some sign-and-trade deals because of that. Now, James Harden is 32. He averaged 22 points and 10 assists in the 65 games that he played between Brooklyn and Philadelphia. But he wasn't a game-changer for the 76ers. They didn't look great with James Harden in Philadelphia. It was kind of a Russell Westbrook situation with Westbrook and the Lakers, Harden with the Sixers. How much do these guys have left? Are they overpaid? James Harden will get rewarded, but he's being a team player, so to speak, by declining the $47 million option. I'll be curious to see where he ends up. 
Does he get the 47 mil still? Keep an eye on that. Third thing in our five kind of sort of big things at five. Steph Curry, Golden State Warriors guard in the NBA Finals MVP, is going to host this year's ESPY Awards. He's attended the ESPYs, but now he will be on stage cracking jokes, talking about the moments of the year. This is a guy who was responsible for some of the biggest moments in sports this last year. He's nominated in several categories, including Best Male Athlete, Best NBA Player, and Best Record-Breaking Performance. The soft-spoken Curry, who coined himself the Petty King during the NBA Finals, he's been kind of funny, hasn't he, off the court? I'll see if he can be funny on stage as part of the ESPYs. The fourth thing in our five at five, Let's talk about uh, Memphis. Imoni Bates, the former number one basketball recruit and Memphis Tiger, is leaving Penny Hardaway's program. He wants to go play at Eastern Michigan. He released a list of six schools in May, including Michigan, Arkansas, DePaul, and Louisville, and then decided he just wanted to go home. He's going to Eastern Michigan, six foot nine inch small forward, still considered one of the elite prospects in the country and he was the number one player in the 2022 class until he reclassified last year but uh, much like his high school recruitment this transfer recruitment was shrouded in mystery was he going to Michigan was he going to Michigan State last season at Memphis he missed 15 of the 33 games because of a back injury he struggled when he was on the floor. He averaged about nine and a half points a game. But he will be the most high-profile player in the Mid-American Conference at Eastern Michigan. Eastern Michigan last year went 10-21. and 21. They'll be happy to have Imani Bates on the court. And finally, the fifth thing in our five at five, it's not cereal or milk in the bowl, but I got to the bottom of a mystery today. I wrote about it at johnconzano.com. Appreciate it, you if you are subscribing and reading. Pumpkin Ridge, the golf course that will host the LIV tournament, they'll make $4.5 million to host three tournaments over three years. That's the payday. That's the price. Pumpkin Ridge took the money. They got some course improvements in the process. They may encounter some protesting this week. They may get some criticism. Hell, they're going to get some criticism. They got some from me. But they also got $4.5 million. That's the price, in case you were wondering, to host the LIV Golf Invitational. By the way, they, uh, that's the 5 at 5. Uh, by the way, they, the LIV Twitter account tweeted out um, the teams for the Portland uh, matchup. Stephen, have you seen this tweet? I have not seen the tweet yet. All right, I want you to look at the LIV Golf Twitter account. Pulling it up. Yep. Yesterday they tweeted out, sort of these uh, images, some artwork of the teams. And it almost looks like it's not real. The team names are absurd. And I want you to tell me what you notice, because I noticed something immediately. But um, if you see the tweet, you'll see a whole bunch of artwork with all the teams, these four-player teams that they're divided up into. Yeah. All right. I'm uh, right here. Can you read off the, the, some of the team names and maybe uh, – 
Maybe uh, yeah. Uh, so we got any the, observation you have about it? We got the Aces. Okay, the Aces. That's a team. That's a. I mean, I guess I get uh, and, it. And granted, I feel like Ben Stiller should be on one of these teams. It should be like a dog dodgeball league. It's that. It's the, that over the top. The purple it's the Cobras. Aces. The Aces. Yeah. What else you got? We got the Stinger. The Stinger. The Ironheads. Oh, I love the Ironheads. And the the Cleeks. Is that a golf term? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but do you notice anything about the ethnicity of these teams? Oh wow, yeah, they are put in uh, in groups. They're grouped. Say. They are grouped by ethnicity. It appears. It, yeah, it, like uh, the Stingers, they all kind of look like they have the same exact face. It's really weird. Okay, so I want you to go to Sergio uh, Garcia's team. Okay. And uh, what are they? The Fireballs. <laughs> Purple eight. No, they are. Uh, Let's see here. I, I think, think they're, they're the cliques. No, I think no, they're, they're the, not. Oh, they're the I fireballs. Got, oh, there's even more. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're the fireballs. And yes. Okay, so they're the fireballs. Who's on that team? If uh, you can see the names, I think it's Sergio and and it's it's a few other Hispanic players, right? Like, I mean, they have them. They're grouped. They're grouped by ethnicity. And there's part of me that's a little. It's going like, what are they trying to do here with this event? But I'm also like they didn't org- the teams weren't weren't organized that way last event, so I'm a little confused on what they're trying to do there. Is that is it like hitting an audience that we don't know about? Because did you see like the Asian players are like all on one team? What yes. is that team called? Yeah, they uh they're the Ironheads. Okay. We got Na, uh, Kawi. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah okay. They're uh, they're the Ironheads. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, did. Like it jumped out at me. Like Anna, Anna noticed it last night, and she was like, "Did you see these team things?" She goes, "It's kind." Of, she goes, "They're so bad, they're good." Like, they're, like the you know the uh, the images are so bad that they actually like you think like this can't be real. This was created by like a teenager in his basement who put these teams together and said, "Okay, the fireballs will be all the it'll be all the Hispanic players that we'll put on." Like it's it's just kind of a little over the top. But I'm told that the aim of this LIV tournament, that by an insider, is that they uh, they want the ability for these teams to have individual ownership, and that the teams would be geographically owned. Like there would be an owner of a team in the Northwest, and it would be uh, golfers who are from the Pacific Northwest. But the owner could trade for players, could draft players. Uh, we saw from the event a week ago or two weeks ago in London that some of the low-level, low-finishing players were excluded from this uh, this round that is now happening at Pumpkin Ridge this week. And so um, they've been knocked off the LIV Tour in order for Brooks Kepka and some of the other newcomers to come on. Uh, they had to lose some golfers. I'm kind of wondering what's going to happen to those golfers because they may not be welcome to go back to the PGA Tour. Yeah, so you were talking about the fireballs. Uh, yeah, it's Sergio Garcia, uh, Carlos Ortiz, Abraham Answer, and they are yes, uh, Answer and Ortiz are both uh, Mexican as well. So like you, they are, and then Lopez Chicara. So they are putting all these players uh, together. One another. is it? Do you think it could be for viewing purposes? You know, because a lot of it is they're trying to be streamed on YouTube. Could they be trying to get maybe you know that ethnicity or that country to maybe you know be more in tune to that group? I guess. I, I mean, that would be my only thought. I think they're they're stabbing in the dark. I think they're trying to do something here. I, I can imagine this meeting, Greg Norman, the shark, in the middle of this meeting, and they're going, okay, we need to group the teams this week. What are we going to do? 
and they decide, you know, why not? Why don't we put all the Hispanic players on one team, and we'll call them the Fireballs? And then why don't we put all the Asian players on another team, and then we'll take kind of the uh, the uh, country club looking, uh, you know, Caucasian guys, and we'll stick them on another team. And it it literally is broken down that way. And I'm wondering if they were trying to generate controversy by doing this, or maybe have people talk about them, or uh, I, I wonder if they maybe were trying to be a little edgy by doing this because I think like I, I wasn't offended by this, but I kind of looked at it and I go, what are they trying to do here? Like, you know, it was it was interesting to me because a lot of times in media, what companies will do, and we all see this in marketing, you watch a commercial, uh, companies are always trying to make the commercial and the people in the commercial universally appealing. So they have sort of the united colors in the commercial, or they have an ambiguous person that you're not sure what ethnicity they are in this commercial. And, and it works to some extent because then it feels more inclusive. But they are doing the opposite with this golf team thing. They're literally going, hey, all the Hispanic players are going to be on this fireball team. And oh, by the way, why the fireballs? I don't know, but it feels to me like, is this not like Ben Stiller in the Dodgeball movies? You know what I mean? The like, logos just... do look like that. I mean, it brings <laughs> up the question, John, like, you know, you're the bald-faced truth. I don't have hair either. It, would our team name be like the Baldies? Are they like going to put us a Baldy team? I, I'm telling you, I don't know if you could do that. Like, <laughs> I don't know if you could have a all-bald-headed team because then – you, if you're going to break down by ethnicity, it would look like you were having, like, Aryan Nation as a team. You, <laughs> yeah. I don't know that you could do that. As a bald man, I'd be offended, John. Yes. So I I just take a peek at it. Uh, I don't want to give them any more love. Don't give them any more follows than, you know. But maybe they're mission accomplished, like they have me talking about them. And I'm not talking negatively about Saudi Arabia. I'm talking about, like, you know, how do they break these teams down? Does it uh, raise any eyebrows out there in the audience? 503-417-7575. How do you feel about the LIV golf event breaking down the teams by ethnicity this week in Portland? Are they just trying to drum up controversy? Are they are they aiming for something else? You tell me. You got the BFT statewide. <laughs> You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I appreciate everybody who makes this radio show part of their day. I am uh, broadcasting today from Corvallis, Oregon, not far from the Oregon State campus. This show will be on the road for parts of the summer. If you want this show to come to your town, you can tweet at me, at John Canzano BFT on Twitter. Um, it is, uh, I appreciate those of you listening in Klamath Falls on 960 AM. Shout out to the uh, family in Klamath Falls. I also appreciate you in Roseburg on 1490 AM. And, of course, in Eugene on the Powerhouse Signal 1050 AM. Steve and the team there. we got to get this show to Eugene at some point. Uh, and if you're listening in Portland and into Salem in southern Washington, you're probably listening on 7.50 a.m. the game. We've been talking about uh, the LIV golf tournament and sort of the breakdown of the teams this week. Like, I do hesitate on one, re on one respect to give that tournament any more of the, of the, uh, you know, the bandwidth that, uh, of this show and publicity on this show. But I do find it it's kind of interesting that they broke the teams down by ethnicity. 
uh, it, it's not what I would have done uh, running the tournament. What do you think they're trying to do? I'm wondering, Sean, what do you think they're trying to do here? You made a really good point about them trying to just be different and, you know, maybe like be attention grabbing, but in a more lighthearted way. So people aren't talking about Saudi Arabia all of a sudden, but we're talking about the silly teams that they just put together. I think we can expect more of that. Yeah, and I, and I wonder, like, do you think this is going to offend people? Do you think there's anybody who would be offended by this? Because I, I sort of, Anna noticed it. Anna noticed, you know, Anna's born in Taiwan. She noticed immediately, she said, they put all the Asian players on one team. And she goes, what's going on with this? And I looked at it, and I was like, it wasn't just the Asian players. It, you know, they have really broken down these teams by ethnicity. Do you think anyone will be offended by that? I mean, I'm sure in, somebody might be. Yeah, in the year 2022, I I would I would say yes, right? <laughs> yeah, the age of social media, I think someone's always going to be offended by whatever you do. Do you think they were aiming for that? Do you think they they were thinking, you know what? What's a we'll change the conversation. It will no longer be about bone saws and Saudi, you know, misdeeds. It'll be about uh, what did they do with these teams? Maybe maybe that's the PR move. Man, they're trying to be controversial in another way. Like I don't, I don't know. know. I, you think they're just adding to uh, to the you know the negativity around them? I I, I doubt that. I like, yeah, they're swerving into all the negativity they're already getting. <laughs> like just be yeah. the bad boys of golf. Have I don't you know. Go I I kind of think they're going to cast away Greg Norman too because I think he's been uh, you know he hasn't been part of the solution. He's been part of the problem. So I I expect that there's going to be some of that uh, coming down the pipeline. Um, all right, so uh, you have this. Will you guys pay attention to this event? Are you going to go to the event? Do you know anyone who's going to the event? No, I, I won't be paying attention to it. Yeah, me me as well. I don't know anyone that's going to it uh, personally. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not too interested in it just just for the same reasons you kind of are. You know, the, the yeah. whole morality thing, it kind of bothers me. It bothers me that they're, that they're you know, obviously Fallon Smart, uh, I think people need to know the story. It's not just about human rights violations like, you know, the record of Saudi Arabia. Like Fallon Smart was 15 years old. She got hit uh, by a, a Lexus, uh, you know, a Saudi uh, national who was driving a Lexus and going to school at Portland Community College, ran her over and then left the scene and left her to die. Uh, he was facing criminal charges. And, you know, it's well documented what happened. An SUV pulled up to his house and took him away and all of a sudden he's back in Saudi Arabia he doesn't face charges and the United States government is saying that they're you know pretty sure that he, they helped him get away and uh, and uh, and then uh, ultimately uh, it was uh, you know people upset like no justice for Fallon smart and so you know I'm uncomfortable with that but I'm also uncomfortable with them just coming in and going hey we can buy this course you know, uh, I, there's a few other things that have not been reported. They, you know, they went to Escalante Golf. They bought the course for four and a half million dollars. Uh, a bunch of members, 24 members, I'm told, have dropped their memberships. Pumpkin Ridge is spinning this, and they're saying, actually, our memberships are up. But what they're not telling people is that they are counting memberships from January 1 to uh, about April, before this event was even mentioned publicly. I was the first news outlet to report that the LIV was coming to Portland. I got a hold of the internal document at Pumpkin Ridge, and I tweeted it out in late March. And that's when everybody went, what? What is happening? What did they do? Uh, Escalante Golf was wanting to keep that as quiet as they could for as long as they could. Um, and then 
it got out. And then, you know, what we also know is that there were several other events that were supposed to be taking place at that time. And one of them, there was a charity event. I am told that the LIV event uh, basically bought out those other events and told them, hey, uh, you know what, we're just going to throw some money at you. Uh, I reached out to one of those entities. They would they would not confirm that they got money from the LIV. Like everybody's embarrassed to say they had anything to do with this tournament, but at the same time, I think uh, this tournament is lining the pockets of security guards and and other personnel. There's even a contractor who was supposed to handle the construction of some of the ancillary things that go around the event, like the grandstands for fans and whatnot. Uh, that contractor does work with the PGA turn, Tour. And that contractor was told, uh, if you work on that LAV event, you are not working for the PGA anymore. So that contractor had to bow out. So it's really interesting to me that they are they are having to work around some of the normal channels that golf events at Pumpkin Ridge work with. And here's the bigger thing. Like, you know, forget it. You know, at the end, this is this is going to this event's going to happen. We're all going to move on. Your summer's going to happen. My summer's going to happen. But here here's the big takeaway that I I don't think Pumpkin Ridge survives, okay? This is it. When I got here in 2002, I knew Pumpkin Ridge. I knew Pumpkin Ridge because I remembered seeing Tiger Woods in 1996 win the US Amateur at Pumpkin and then Nike did, you know, you know, basically Tiger meet the world and launched his his campaign. And I remember where I was. I remember when I saw it. I remember thinking, gosh, that Pumpkin Ridge course sure looks amazing. I'd like to see it someday. And that's what I remembered. Now, you may remember the Nike Tour. You may remember the Corn Ferry events that were held there. You may remember Pumpkin Ridge for hosting LPGA events. But I'm going to tell you. That ship has sailed. Pumpkin Ridge Golf Course will no longer be known as one of the great golf courses in the state of Oregon. It's been surpassed by Bandon Dunes and others. It will no longer be known as that place that was so magical that Tiger won you know, his amateur championship at. Nope. That golf course is going to be known as the golf course that sold out to the LIV tournament. It, it was a money grab. And, I, and I'm going to tell you, it's going to take 20 or 30 years for anybody to forget that. And we're going to have three events there. I mean, I just think there's a whole bunch of people who are going to go, you know what? I kind of lost some respect for Pumpkin Ridge. Hey, John, I got a question for you real quick. Does it make it that much worse that it's the first tournament in America yes. for the LIV tournament? Like if yes. it was three years into this into this new golf league, would it be any different? But the fact that it's the first time in America it's at Pumpkin Ridge, yeah, does that make a, it that much worse? It's a slap in the face. I think for, you know, I always say, when I first heard it, I said, gosh, they just dropped a turd in the lap of the members out there because the members didn't know it was coming, and they got stuck with it. And, look, this is a club that is celebrating its 30th anniversary and they don't like to publicize this, but there were members who signed on 30 years ago that paid an initiation fee that was uh, designed to be refundable. That initiation fee was supposed to be reimbursed. When Escalante Golf took over Pumpkin Ridge, they assumed that liability. Now, if all the members basically went to Pumpkin and said, you know, we want our initiation fee back, I'll take my refundable initiation fee and I'll go packing, uh, Escalante Golf's going to have to pony up all that money. I just wondered, you know, is it really worth sacrificing your brand, your image, 
for four and a half million dollars in some course improvements that that like will forever stain the course or at least cause you know, even if people are going hey i'm okay with this you still have to acknowledge this was a hit on pumpkin ridge's brand and that's sad to me and then and then you go further like everybody wants to make this liv event special you know shotgun tournaments happen all the time there's nothing special or unique about it there's nothing unique about that team events happen in golf all the time there's nothing unique about that there's nothing special about that so i'm not really sure other than the hundreds of millions of dollars that they're throwing at players what is special about this event because it doesn't feel special to me like you know i i assume that the pga tour will look at some of what the LIV is doing and going, you know, should we adopt some of this format or are we good? I kind of expect they're going to look at most of it in the way that the NFL looked at the XFL and the USFL, and they're going to go, most of this stuff eh, doesn't really work for us. It's not special. So I, I don't know if it's going to have that much of an impact on the PGA, but you're right, Stephen, in that this being the first event and it's happening on U.S. soil, it's going to attract, you know, Golf Digest reached out to me. Uh, all these other golf writers nationally are in town. The national media is going to be all over this thing, and it's going to be like, hey, this event is on American soil. You know, oh, well, by the way, we're in Oregon today. It's not what we want in our region. We want, you know, we want to feel good about the sporting events are, that are here. But uh, this is 2022, and this is where we are. I want you to leave it here. you got the BFT statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, we got to talk about Freddie Freeman. Oh, man. This is going to get ugly. Freddie Freeman has fired his agent, Casey Close. We saw the ovation that uh, Freddie Freeman got when he made his return to Atlanta. It was just about a week ago as uh, you know, longtime Braves player who won a world championship there. They were giving out his World Series ring. He signed with the Dodgers in the offseason. Um, and it turns out that Freddie Freeman found out that the Dodgers may not have had the best offer, or at least the Braves made a final offer that his agent did not share with him. Doug Gottlieb on his radio show um, shared this. He said during Freddie Freeman's return to Atlanta this last uh, week or so, he learned that his agent failed to tell him about the Braves' final extension offer. He fired Casey Close. He wanted to be a Brave for the rest of his career. He did not get that opportunity, but his agent... Uh, was his agent working with the Dodgers? Why did his agent want him with the Dodgers so badly? So much so that he served the Dodgers before he served Freddie Freeman. What the hell was going on here with this agent? Any agent worth a damn will tell you that their client is the player, not the team. But we are seeing in the NBA agents, um, you know, uh, that will, that will. Uh, you know, come back and, and sort of steer talent to one city and then tell the team, hey, if you take my guy and give him a deal, I'll give you another guy. Um, Freddie Freeman 
um, you know, this was let, – let me just go back to last year after the World Series. Uh, Braves manager Brian Snitker talked about Freddie Freeman. He's everything that the Braves epitomize. I mean, when you talk about a Braves-type player, it's Freddie Freeman. How he comes to play every day, um, what he does in our community, the person that he is, the influence he has on, on all of his teammates, um, me in particular. I don't know what I'd do without him, quite honestly. I mean, he's my rock, too. I mean, it's like I I go to him with things. Um, <clears throat> I've been, you know, been with him since the first day he came here in the big leagues. And, um, you know, he's everything that the Braves stand for. This story is not done. The Dodgers should be investigated here as well. Uh, their relationship with Casey Close, Freeman's agent, is in question here. Freddie Freeman, uh, in April, hit a home run in his first at-bat against the Braves. It was his first home run of the season, came against his old team. Slices long deep left center field. Freddie Freeman hits his first home run as a Dodger in his first at-bat against the Braves. Freddie Freeman later said it was a uh, really special night and, you know, he got to hit a home run against his old team. This is before he found out that he might have might have been better off staying on that team. So then yeah. you had first at bat, a huge home run. Could it have played out any more perfectly? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I kind of just hit it and I was like, oh my gosh, please go out. But uh, it was just one of those moments that, you know, obviously I just wanted to play well. It doesn't matter who the opponent is, but... Um, I think Trey mentioned it earlier. He was like, that was, that was great of you to uh, wait nine games to hit your first home run to have your first one against the Braves. But, uh, it, and it worked out. But, um, you know, it's just good. I'm glad uh, I had a lot of family here that they got to see me hit home run. All was well, Freddie Freeman in a Dodgers uniform until Friday night last week. Freeman went to Atlanta where he got his World Series ring and got a standing ovation from the fans. He was very emotional receiving his ring and this I think was a precursor to Freddie Freeman learning that the Braves had made a final offer in free agency that his agent failed to share with him. Here's the uh, emotional scene on Friday night. And then you get to the big leagues and then you just want to stay and then when you're lucky and blessed enough to be able to stay your whole mindset changes. And all you want to do is win, because no kid wants to thinks about a World Series and just think about I want to be in the big leagues, you know. And when you get here, and you get to put on that Braves jersey, say 14 and a half years, because I had to put on a Pelicans jersey for half a year. So <laughs> um, the only thing that matters is winning. We went through a lot of up and downs in my 12 years, and then we reached the pinnacle last year of winning it all. Um, that ring is just not a ring to me. 
with all the sacrifices. All the missed family time. All the hours. The broken wrists. The 14 hour bus rides. The minor leagues. The 4 a.m. get into hotels. The grind every single year. The family. better feeling in the sport. So, and to do it with Snit, a wall, Eric, washed, Sal, Rick Granite, Alex, Terry, and all those guys in the uniform in that clubhouse that are still there. And so that aren't, that ring is good. There's nothing better. That was last Friday night in Atlanta. Freddie Freeman, obviously emotional, he found out over the weekend that the Braves made an offer that his agent did not share with him. He fired his agent. He's upset. I am, uh, I am shaking my head at the absurdity or the, the gall of that agent, who also apparently represents Clayton Kershaw, uh, of not sharing that offer with Freddie Freeman. The... Uh, definitely, that is definitely going to hurt the agent's reputation, but I also wonder if Major League Baseball opens an investigation into what happened. Did the Dodgers play a role in this? Was the agent paid off? Was there something else at play? What were the offers? I, I think it's a fascinating story, and it's a, it's a glimpse into the business of baseball and an ugly, ugly business of baseball. I want you to leave it here. you got the BFT statewide. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. It's been a lively show today. I encourage you to grab a podcast. If you want to hear Tyson Alger talk about the Ducks and the Beavers or Julian Minnesota at KZI and Eugene talk about the expectations for Dan Lanning in year one. Or you want to hear uh, former Major League Baseball umpire Jim Joyce explaining what we're seeing when we're watching umpiring in the big leagues today. That was a fascinating talk. The podcast of that Jim Joyce interview is worth your time. Give it a listen. You can uh, pick up a podcast of this show, The Bald Face Truth radio show, uh, wherever you find podcasts. And if you're on an iPhone, you should make a commitment. The podcast is free. Really. The free lunch is never really free. Like, if somebody gives you a free lunch, they generally want to sell you a timeshare or they want something from you. But in this case, the free podcast really is free. Uh, All we want you to do is listen to it, share it with people, enjoy it, uh, escape from your day uh, by listening to the podcast. But that Jim Joyce podcast would be fantastic listen. I I loved it. Uh, We're going to play Punch It Audio here in the final segment. It is the best sound from all around. Giddy up. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's start with Arch Manning, Texas recruit, Pete Thamel, ESPN. 
laying it down. What happened with the Arch Manning recruitment? Punch it. Sure. I, I think you get a, a side of optimism with your queso here in Austin now, Matt. Uh, it's actually eight. Uh, you can't even keep up with the number of commitments Texas has gotten in the, in the wake of Arch Manning's commitment. Five of those are on the offensive side of the ball. Four of those are offensive linemen. Players want to play with stars, and Arch Manning not only gives Texas a vision and a linchpin for the future, but it's also the blessing of the Manning family of the Sark era, which bluntly didn't start well at 5-7, and seven, getting blown out at Arkansas, six-game losing streak. They lost to Kansas at home. This week of time here, may, we may look back as somewhat that changes the trajectory of the Texas program. Yeah, Thamel's got it right, and I think Thamel does a good job on his uh, doing what he's doing. But Arch Manning to Texas, it's going to create some buzz. It's going to create other players wanting to play alongside him. It's exactly what Steve Sarkeesian needed, especially as Texas is preparing to join the SEC. This was SEC-like recruiting, big-time recruit. But let's see if Sark can uh, do what he's supposed to do with uh, that kind of talent. He's got to coach it. Serena Williams, we mentioned on yesterday's show, she lost at Wimbledon, making a comeback age 40, coming off an injury, hadn't played in a year. She says she doesn't know if this is the end. Punch it. Really, but do you think it's more likely than not that you won't come back? Would that be your last singles match, do you think? Um, that's, that's, a, that's a question I can't answer. Like, I don't know. I feel like, um, you know, I don't know. Who knows? Who knows where I'll pop up? Who knows where she's going to pop up? I think she's she's got to be noncommittal. I don't want to see her go out that way, too. First round loss against an opponent that, you know, just was in a little better uh, tennis condition and a little better form at, on center court. It, it's not how I want to see Serena go out. I'd like to see her make one more run at this. Uh, I think she's such a competitor, such a great story. 23 Grand Slam titles. Uh, pretty uh, pretty fun to watch her play. Not fun to see Harmony Tam beat her in the first round. But uh, Serena Williams says she's on the fence. To me, that means, no, she's not done. Let's go to the Mariners-Orioles series. Jesse Winker at the plate. Bottom of the eighth inning. Punch it. Julio take it off. Club. Mariners go on to win the game, 2-zip, beat the Orioles, tie the series. Mariners' uh, season hasn't been fruitful. It's been disappointing. But if you have uh, a dog in this fight, I guess the redeeming thing is they were in this clump of teams after the Astros in the American League West with the Rangers and Angels alongside them that are all jockeying for that second position in the American League West. Also sitting at 36 wins, you know, you, you know, it's early yet in, in this season, early enough yet in this season that somebody in that group, the Rangers, the Angels, the Mariners, somebody will turn it around. Mariners have won 7 of 10, though. Have to feel good about that. Tyson Alger of the I-5 Corridor. 
joined us earlier in the show. I asked him about what a successful season would look like for Dan Lanning at Oregon. Year one. Here's what Alger said. Punch it. It's a tough one to answer because he is taking over a program that is loaded with talent that has been to multiple Pac-12 championships over the last few years. Um, you know, I, I think it's tough to expect a, a first-year head coach to necessarily better what, what Mario Cristobal did for the last four years. But I, I think the success that you want to see from this program is, one, to at bare minimum compete for a Pac-12 championship. Um, you know, I, I think it's still a little bit too early and, and we haven't seen enough out of the quarterback position to really know whether or not they should be the front runner in this conference. But, you know, Mario Cristobal recruited his butt off for four years, and they have a lot of that rough roster right now. But I, I think more importantly is just whatever happens this season to have a bit of – to have a kind of a clear path and springboard going into the next few years. Because if they keep bringing in this level of talent, you know, that the level of expectation was to, to be a national contender. And, and whether – you know, I don't expect the Ducks all of a sudden – to start competing for national championships here in the next year or two. But I, I do think that we are reaching a level at college football where the people who are going to be on the bus are about to leave. And, and by that, I mean the, these top-level teams that have the money and, and kind of the power to, to, to win players over with NIL and exposure and recruiting. And I, I think Oregon's one of those teams. Now they just got to make sure that they, they have their ticket and spot on the bus uh, here after Lane's first year. I th- actually think the bus has left. But I think the bus is... Like it's like one of those city buses, one of those TriMet buses in Portland, that it's not moving all that fast, and you know it's stopping again in two blocks, and so you're just you got your head down, you got your bag on your shoulder if you're Dan Landing, and you're running after the bus, and let's just say Oregon, Utah, USC, maybe Washington, they're more equipped to catch the bus, because if you look at the bus, for using this metaphor all the way. Most of the SEC is already on the bus. Some of the Big Ten is on the bus. Ohio State, Michigan may be on that bus already. But the Pac-12, nobody on the Pac-12 is on the bus right now. If college football playoff is the bus. You have not been a regular participant in this thing. And I think that, to me, makes it uh, difficult to catch the bus. All right, that's Punchin' Audio, the best sound from all around. I appreciate everybody who makes this radio show part of their day. We work hard, Stephen, Sean, Judah, Peter, uh, all the interns, the army of interns and production assistants who play a role in this show. Uh, I appreciate everybody uh, who is here for it. You can fade the music out now, Stephen. But... Uh, I uh, I like the I like the music. Don't get me wrong, but I also I just appreciate the listeners being here and making this show part of their day. You can read me exclusively at johnconzano.com. Grab a subscription there, free or paid, whatever works for you. We're back tomorrow. The bald faced truth is not here for a long time. Just a good time. Have a great night, everybody.